Welcome to the Boiled Frogs podcast. Due to the graphic nature of the content that will be discussed in the following interviews, listener discretion is advised. This podcast contains accounts of physical abuse, sexual assault, drug use, and murder. We advise extreme caution for some audiences. A shower thought I recently had was, where did all the cult leaders come from? Was it ever a childhood dream of theirs to become a prominent figure reviled by society? Obviously, there are people who have personalities that are drawn to the spotlight or roles of leadership, but my thought was more along the lines of, has there ever been a young boy or girl with a particular passion to become the next Jim Jones? And for the sake of carrying on the thought, I assumed there was, and then thought, well, where do you go from there? Is there a secret university you attend that educates the future cult leaders of the world? You know, as the first year brainwashing 101, communal economics, and for your final and cataclysmic studies, you have to write a 20-page essay on your end-of-the-world prediction? Obviously, all that's in jest, but the reason it feels like there is some training they attend before starting one of these groups is because so many of the cults that we know about seem very similar. Sure, their practices and beliefs may differ, but the basic framework for almost all of them looks pretty much the same. Which led me to my next thought, which was then to try and list as many of these cults as I could off the top of my head. And that was surprisingly challenging. I think I got seven or eight, and I would imagine the average for most people is about five to ten, of which I bet the People's Temple, the Branch Davidians, and Heaven's Gate are somewhere in the top of everyone's list. But even the true crime junkies probably couldn't name every single one, and that's not just because there have been hundreds and hundreds with more popping up all the time, but because most people don't even hear about the vast majority of them. In fact, Ben Zeller, author and expert in cults and American religion, said about it in an interview, quote, Many of these groups come and go without you or me ever knowing they were even there, end quote. So how do we find out about these groups that we never even knew were there? Well, you have to talk to someone that was there, someone who experienced the life that sets these groups apart from normal society. And today that's what we'll do. I'm going to tell you about a cult that operated on the west coast of the United States for over 20 years, and the only reason I know anything about it is because I was there. The stories you'll hear are first-hand accounts of what happened when one self-proclaimed prophet gained complete control over the lives of his followers for two decades, and see what can happen when the wrong person gets their hands on the right people. What you're doing is the story that needs to be told. I mean, this was not just a uh, childhood thing. Like this, this fucked up my life. We were manipulated. The love of God is what snared him and got him in there. The fear of hell is what kept everybody. You know, some of it was so stupid and I don't know why we did it. Like when I'm like, oh yes, my children are gonna go live with you. Oh, (laughs) shouldn't do that, he's a registered sex offender. He told us that he raped his daughters multiple times. You will find that once you start to tell them about the church and the things that happened, you will get some looks. Everybody that I knew that wasn't part of our church thought our church was a cult. Everybody, without fail. And then when you look back, you're like, my God, how did it get like this? But I still had that overwhelming feeling that if I did not get out, that I was going to die. I look back now and see the horrible things that back then were normal. And he said, my job is to make you obey, obey, obey. It begins with a man named Thomas Clyde Smith Jr. Not much is known of his early life, except he was born in Utah in 1927. He claimed to be a Navy frogman in World War II, and the frogmen were basically the predecessors for the Navy SEALs, 
But while he was in the Navy Reserves from 1945 to 1954, his highest rank and title was a gunner's mate third class. He also claimed to be the all-service lightweight boxing champion while he served, and after leaving the Navy, to have owned a cabinet shop and ran a baseball training camp on the side. By 1980, he'd been married four times and had five children. He loved watching baseball, boxing, and spent a good amount of his free time reading, everything from books on science to history and, of course, religion. Besides his marital troubles, he led people to believe he had a good life, that is, until everything fell apart in 1965 when he was arrested and charged with incest and rape for sexually assaulting one of his daughters. Following his arrest, he did six months in jail and spent a year in a Tascadero psychiatric hospital in California. But it was during his time in the hospital that the trajectory of his life would change forever, because it was there that he converted to Christianity, and at the same time, began hearing a voice that acted as a spiritual guide throughout the rest of his life. So when he was released, he moved to Nevada and promptly joined a church called Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas. It was then that his true calling became evident, as he claims visions started coming to him. Visions that he said were his call from God to start the true church. His story of the visions were that he awoke from a dream one night and was called by a now familiar voice into his living room to a set of wooden cabinet doors on his entertainment center. While staring at these cabinets, he saw the life of Jesus as well as the end times play out in the patterns of the wood, as well as his role in the things to come. The next day he showed it to his pastor, but instead of receiving encouragement, he was met with concern. The pastor told Smith it was not from God but from the devil, and that he should sand it off and forget it ever happened. Smith later professed, with tears and a choked up voice, that it crushed him, but he did as he was told and sanded the images off the doors. However, forgetting would be difficult for Smith, as a few nights later the same thing occurred. This led him to believe it was truly a sign from God, and that the pastor who told him otherwise was in fact a servant of the Antichrist. So, in the mid-70s, Smith started laying the foundations to start his own church, one where he, a self-proclaimed prophet, would teach the true gospel and lead God's chosen people through the perils of the end times and ultimately into heaven. His plans to establish his church started small. Initially, he had a house group where he held Bible studies at his home in Las Vegas. Then, over the following months, his Bible studies gained traction as Smith proved to be a charismatic teacher. He boasted of his calling and direct connection to God, and accepted people of any color or walk of life, as long as they changed their ways upon joining his church. After a few years, he had satellite groups in other cities like Beatty, Nevada, and San Bernardino, California, and his total number of followers was about 300. Eventually, when Smith felt he had a strong enough foundation, he called for these groups to move to Vegas and consolidate into one body. So in the late 70s, his vision became a reality when he turned a large addition on his home into the main gathering place for all of his followers. This became his promised church, the Bride of Christ Church. Of course, to be accepted as pastor, he needed to be ordained, and Smith claimed to be, by Dr. G.J. Soriano, founder of the Faith Restoration Center in the Philippines. But legitimacy hardly mattered to him, as he believed his real authority came from a higher power. He would say, quote, I've been ordained by God and also by man, but I was called by God and answer only to God, end quote. Now, normally you would think it difficult for a sex offender to put themselves in a role of leadership, but Smith found his path to authority by likening himself to the Apostle Paul from the Christian Bible. For those of you who don't know the story, Paul started out as a villain. He persecuted Christians, had them imprisoned and stoned. Then, he was traveling one day and was waylaid by an angel, struck blind, realized he was wrong, converted to Christianity, and went on to write much of the New Testament. That's, of course, the condensed version, but the moral of the story being... 
If you repent, your past sins can be forgiven, and you can be reborn, become a new man, a great man even. And that's what Smith convinced his followers he was. But it wasn't that he looked the part of a great man. He himself was a short, husky man in his 50s, with a neat beard, slick back hair, and a missing ear. But though he wasn't physically imposing, he was, or at least wanted to be portrayed, as tough. Remember he claimed to be an elite in the Navy and a boxing champion? Well, he also walked around with this tough guy persona, and he despised weakness, laziness, and referred to men he looked down upon as sissies or punks. But Smith was also quite charming. He just seemed to be one of those people who had a captivating personality. He stared into your eyes with a gaze that looked right through you. He had a warm smile and an infectious laugh. And when he taught, he was passionate. His voice thunderous, with spit flying from his mouth as he shouted sermons of fire and brimstone from the pulpit. He taught only from the King James Version Bible, saying that anything else was watered down, and everything he did was a performance, even the little things, like him standing the duration of his teachings, which could last up to five hours, saying that refusing to sit was one of his many sacrifices. As for his teachings, they were conservative and consisted of fear-based messages that revolved heavily around the end times. He directly proclaimed to his audience that he was a prophet, and that all the world was destined for hell, except those that followed him. And he called on his followers to live a perfect life without sin, and to cut out anything in their lives that might lead them to stray from the holy path. But it wasn't just his teachings and charisma that drew people into the Bride of Christ Church. A lot of it was the atmosphere. Smith had cultivated a welcoming, loving community that accepted everyone from any race or background, and made people feel like they belong. And many of those that joined never felt like they belonged anywhere. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I never even heard of the church before. But I remember this guy, when he told me about it, all he told me was he got saved. You know, he's living for the Lord now, um, and, and he's going to church. And he shared his testimony with me, which I knew how he was. So when this guy started told me about Jesus, man, I knew my life <laughs> was wrong. <laughs> I knew I was on a straight path to hell. But uh, I went to went to the church with him one night, got saved, and that was it. The first thing I noticed when the doors opened was guitars and a drum set and some amplifiers and I thought, oh, that looks like, you know, look like a concert setup. And then people came up and everybody introduced themselves and gave me a hug and I just felt like, wow, this is a big, like, happy family. I mean, everybody wanted to greet you. Everybody wanted to say hi. Everybody was glad you're there and everybody wanted you to come back. What happened was, was you came and, you know, we had great music and worship for hours. And, you know, it released all these endorphins and gave you this high. And, you know, everybody, it was very, um, you know, everybody hugged to greet your brother and kissed. You had to greet your brethren with a holy kiss. So everybody kissed and hugged to meet. Um, It was all positive and helping each other and... Um, you know, there, there were, you had support, you know, you needed help babysitting, there was support, you needed help with your yard, there was support, you needed help with this, so it was support, it was love, it was acceptance, it was happiness, and salvation, does it get better than that? But the love that people showed in that church was genuine, the affection was genuine, and it really seemed like they cared about you as a, a person that gave their life to Christ. The pastor, he was kind and loving and happy, and we always laughed together and just welcoming, happy, loving. 
he was friendly. He was concerned about people. Um, he was nice. We used to go to his house and he'd go to have the guys go out to Dairy Queen and get us those peanut butter parfaits <laughs> from Dairy Queen. And he'd come back with them for everybody. And we'd sit around, watch TV with them. It was, it was a friendly relationship. We'd hang out with them and have the recliners and sit with them. And it was a blast. I remember coming into the church and he came up and he grabbed my face and said something like, you're loved and welcome here and kissed me right on the lips. But it was this big cherubie smile and face. I remember he, it was like he was glowing. It was a feeling of coming home, you know, like you finally came home. And most of us were outcasts. When I first was introduced to the church, you remember Val, she had invited me out. She said, uh, asked me, did I want to go see a movie? I said, sure. And I thought it was a movie at a theater. Mm-hmm. But the pastor was showing a movie at his house that night. I was high on PCP. And uh, when I went and I saw the movie, the movie was called, I don't know if you've ever heard of the movie, it's called Future Survival. It was talking about how it was going to, you know, how they portrayed it was going to be, you know, when the bomb dropped. And then when, at that point, when I saw that movie, I said, I need to get myself right. And uh, that was when I joined the church. After I started going to church, that's when I start hearing stuff about it. People, uh, you know, professed Christians on base would tell me, oh, you can't go to that church. That's a bad church. It's a cult. See, the church was all about um, you can be free from sin. And all the Christians I talked to that weren't in the church said, oh, no, you're going to sin. You're going you're to sin. Well, in our church, they said, no, you don't have to. Yeah, you might. And most people do, like every day, but you don't have to. You can be free from sin. You know, you can live a perfect life before God. Not a perfect life before man, but a perfect life before God. So you don't, you know, what sin do I have to do? That's That was our testimony. I remember coming into the barracks after work sometimes, and I would literally step over these guys going to my room. And they'd be sitting in the halls playing their little Christian music on their little guitars Never said a word to me. And I used to wish they would say something to me. I remember that. You know, just, man, I'll listen. But they never said a word until after I start going to the church. And then they just come out of the woodworks telling me, you know, how bad the church is. And I'd kind of listen to them and, you know, kind of, you know, maybe something is going on at this church that I don't know about. So when I'd go back to the church, I'd listen to what they were saying and try to find it. And nothing the 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 final straw that broke the camel's back for me because you know I was debating whether or not to stay in the church because of what everybody was saying about it I was talking to one of these guys after church you know back at the base and he was saying man they 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 brainwash you I'm like yeah they they keep you up late at night and and you know you're there for hours the pastor just goes on and on. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, man, they'll just they'll just brainwash you. And then I thought about that. I thought, you know what? I used to smoke cigarettes. I used to smoke weed. <laughs> I used to cuss. I mean, I cussed like a sailor, worse than a sailor. I mean, I used to do, I, I just started listing all this stuff that I used to do that I didn't do anymore now that I was in the church. And I thought, man, if they're brainwashing me, then wash away because uh, 
I know what I used to do, and I'm not doing it anymore. So, and that was it. I start, I start dedicating myself to, you know, Christ that was being taught at the church. So, and one day I went to the church, and I walked in the door, and I was greeted by one, and I was getting hugs, and I was, but I loved it. I loved it. I got saved that night. Came home, poured out the booze, threw out the cigarettes, and that was it. I was on fire. But anything that seems too good to be true usually is. And as time goes on, you start to see cracks in Smith's character, some duplicity, because his doctrine and behavior aren't lining up. On one hand, he taught to be kind, loving, to look out for each other, to accept anyone no matter their faults. And, this one he was big on, to forgive. He himself wouldn't be where he was if he hadn't been given a second chance. He taught pacifism and even demanded his followers in the military leave the service. But on the other hand, he was verbally aggressive to anyone he saw as an enemy and began turning that aggression on his followers when they stepped out of line. And this wasn't a new pattern of behavior for him either, as one of his own daughters said he had always been a quote-unquote vicious father. He was extremely critical of people's faults, and you'll see as we go farther, he was not one to forgive. And his actions continue to outline this duplicity. Later, he wrote a newsletter detailing how the Catholic Church had desecrated the Sabbath, urging people to work on Saturday instead of observing the Sabbath on Saturday. In the newsletter, he says, quote, It was the Catholic Church that changed the day to Sunday, thus placing itself above the teachings of the Almighty God. And what spirit has always placed itself above the Almighty God? End quote. He's, of course, referring to the Antichrist. But not long after writing this letter and enforcing the Sabbath, he decides his church doesn't have enough money and has his followers start working Saturdays and Sundays. Another example is that Smith forbade pornography and masturbation. He said in a newsletter, quote, Masturbation is the first step towards homosexuality, man loving himself, end quote. And in case you're wondering, this is not a pro-LGBTQ statement. Tom Smith was vehemently anti-gay. We would add hours to this episode if I read all of his quotes condemning homosexuality, but one member who had access to Smith's home reported that he walked in on Smith watching porn on multiple occasions. But it wasn't just that he said one thing and did another. His emotions were all over the place, too. Anyone that spent enough time around him was aware of his wild mood swings. Even the children know you couldn't guess what to expect from him from one day to the next. But his moods went both ways. When the pendulum swung back from his dark side, he was someone you wanted to be around. He could make you feel special elevated, like you were a part of his family, and his family was all that mattered in the world. He could break you down but also build you up, rebuke you for your faults, or shower you with praise for behavior he approved of, though the latter was much less frequent. And it was these moments of praise that made you continuously seek his approval. Right now, any therapists out there are thinking, you know, this sounds like abusive relationships one-on-one. Get out while you can. And quite a few people eventually did, but hundreds didn't. Because while on paper it's easy to spot red flags, When he was in front of you teaching, you were enthralled. Now, like many new churches popping up in the 70s and 80s that were influenced by the charismatic movement, or Jesus movement, Smith's church was radical. There was singing and dancing during worship. People were speaking in tongues, and miracles were said to be happening. But Smith's conservative views and odd practices made him stand out from other churches in the area, also experiencing a spiritual awakening. It didn't help that he vocally considered most pastors, with the exception of David Koresh and Jim Jones, to be lukewarm Christians at best, though he mostly referred to other pastors as, quote, false prophets teaching the doctrine of the Antichrist, end quote. He believed what was being taught in other churches was a watered-down version of the gospel, or outright lies. 
He says in one of his pamphlets, quote, The false prophets of our land come preaching a Jesus that falls short of the biblical Jesus. Their Jesus is a very permissive God. These prophets are responsible for lukewarm Christianity pervading the world today that portrays Jesus as a meek creature who loves everything, judges nothing, excuses sin, and promises to take everyone to heaven that professes his name. He goes on to say, He lived a sinless life and commanded others to do the same. Today false prophets deny this is possible, yet God said plainly to do it. True believers take God at his word and believe that they must overcome all sin in their lives. End quote. And this was the cornerstone of his doctrine, to live a perfect life without sin. While this may seem like a normal idea for Christians, the methods and practices Smith implemented to promote a sinless life were anything but normal. For instance, he called on the utter submission of women to their husbands and of those in his flock to him, saying, quote, True Christians are commanded to be under submission to God-given authority, end quote. And he, of course, was that authority. He then cites the Bible verse Hebrews 13, 17 that says, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves. And Smith saw it as his obligation to discipline those who submitted to him for their sins. And while in the early days his methods of discipline could be considered light, comparatively, as the years went on, they became more and more extreme. When I was born in 1990, the church's extreme practices were in full swing, where the submission Smith called for gave him total control over every aspect of his followers' lives, from what they ate, to what they wore, when they could speak, who they married, even which of the children they were allowed to keep. But that didn't happen overnight. His grip slowly tightened as he introduced and initiated new rules. It's like the process of boiling a frog, which I'm sure most of you know about, but for those of you who don't, there was an experiment years ago, you can find it online, where they discovered that a frog will sit in a pot of water until it boils to death, but only if you increase the temperature in small increments over time. With that in mind, we'll look at some of the tactics Smith used to gain control. It started with immersion. He had his followers gather on a near nightly occasion where he taught late into the night. He also encouraged members to divulge all their personal information to him and to each other, calling on them to confess their sins, desires, and secrets, and to hide nothing. Then he started turning members against anyone outside of the group, first against other pastors teaching things that didn't line up with his gospel. He would write pamphlets, or tracts, that his followers dispersed throughout the city, where he wrote scathing remarks about the community and other churches. He accused them of allowing things such as witchcraft, homosexuality, unmarried people living together, and female pastors, among many other things. One track said, quote, They fear to take real authority over sin and preach the true gospel because some in their flock might be offended. They are afraid of what men might do to them, and there is virtually no admonishing and rebuking sin in their flocks. End quote. He goes on to quote 1 Timothy 5.20 saying, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. And he did this rebuking before all often, even in the early days. Imagine, if you will, going to your usual Sunday service, and in the middle of a service, your pastor brings up a member and yells at them in front of the gathering. Likely something you won't experience in modern-day churches, but in the Bride of Christ, this was normal. Another aspect of control was that all romantic relationships were approved or vetoed by Smith. He would say things like, My spirit tells me you should or should not be with so-and-so, and that was pretty much that. And while the church was in Vegas, relationships were somewhat normal. If Smith approved of the union, they would go on dates and court for a time before a period of engagement, and finally, marriage. Many couples, Smith put together himself, though his matchmaking was not always looked upon favorably by those he sought to join. One such couple he only put together because they were both African-American. 
another, was coerced into immediate union for having sex outside of wedlock. On a few occasions, girls around 16 or 17 were arranged to marry older men, and future arrangements were being made between children in the church as marriage outside of the group was not allowed. It was during a time in 81 when a lot of people were getting married. It was just like the thing to do. And it wasn't so much that I was in love with him because I wasn't, but it was just because by this time you're you're so much into the church and into what's going on and doing what you know everybody else does. It's like, okay, I get married. I know just didn't love me. I didn't love him at the time, but it was just like, okay, everybody gets married, so let's get married, and that's what we did. And a lot of it was because he didn't like the fact of having single women that weren't married because that causes lust. There was only one couple that was truly forced to get married. And that was, they had sex. And because of it, there's scriptures in the old Testament that says, if if you take a virgin, then you have to marry her or you have to pay her father, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was the only actual forced marriage in the church. There were people that dad said, you need to marry this one. That one needs to marry that one. I think what she said is they were made to get married because they were the only two black people in the church. It didn't matter whether they liked each other. Yeah. First she was married to Tommy and then she never wanted to be married to Tommy. And so then um, one of the times when he got kicked out, she left him and she asked to marry Jeff and Tommy came back and was absolutely brokenhearted because the wife, his wife had been married away. Jeff was always very ashamed of it because that was, he said, I should have never married my brother's wife. I don't really know where dad was going with it. You know, why he was doing that. It was almost like he was, because when somebody would leave, he would all try to find a new husband for him or a new wife for him. So there's, there's only two single women in the church and that was Sue and uh, this girl named and there's like five single guys and two single women. And I had already asked if Sue would marry me in Vegas. And so then I asked the pastor again, I said, uh, well, you think, you know, Sue would want to get married this time? And he asked her, and apparently she said yes, so I ended up marrying Sue. She married my dad because they gave her an option. It was either marry Paul or marry my dad. Yeah. But she did not want to be with Paul. When I turned about 17, the pastor at that time Mr. Smith, he decided that I was going to be engaged to marry Johnny and I didn't Johnny's like your mom's age they're the same age, they're 8 years older than me I didn't see him that way I didn't want to get married I I, I didn't want to be in that situation but I remember telling my mom I don't want to marry him and she was like well you know, that was what I was expected to do it was really no way around it you never really you never really disagreed with the pastor about anything i mean i never had any cause to but anyways i got up in front of the church one day and i said you know i want to confess a fall i'm struggling and before i could finish the pastor called your mom up (laughs) and he said come up here and so i'm standing in front of the church pastor standing next to me and she's standing next to him and he said, do you want to be with this girl? I said, nope. <laughs> In front of everybody. 
and uh, he starts chewing on me a little bit. And while he's chewing on me, I wasn't listening to what he said. I thought in my mind, I thought, man, if I say no, because he's, you know, kind of beating me down to be with be with her. I said, if I say no, I'm going to get kicked out of the church. And I don't want to get kicked out of the church. So we're standing up in front of the church. But I knew, I, I knew the way he was talking, I had a choice. It, at least that's what I thought in my mind. I knew he was going to ask again. And when he did ask and he said, so, do you want to be with her or not? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Because I thought, you know what? She's a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm going to be continuing to be a Christian. And everything that I used to do in my life, I don't do anymore. My life goes a whole new different direction. You know, it can only get better. <laughs> but it didn't. You got to have some kind of feelings for somebody. You can't just marry him. At least I couldn't. But I stuck with it for 20 years. <laughs> then the dynamics of relationships changed too. Later on, there was no longer a period of dating. If Smith put two people together or approved of a union, they were married immediately. He could also separate a couple at his discretion. His reasons for doing so often being outlandish things that he interpreted as sin. He also had spouses get divorced when a member was permanently exiled from the church. Then, to avoid having an unwed adult woman in his flock, because he believed women incapable of controlling their lust, he would pair them up with one of the unmarried men. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so to jump back in where we were, Smith asked that members of his flock should only refer to him and his wife as dad and mom, each other as brother and sister, and the children to call him and his wife grandpa and grandma. He also initiated kissing as the greeting of all church members to build up a sense of close community, though his true motives might have been a little more nefarious as he took it a step further by French kissing female members. He called this the holy kiss and said that Jesus and his disciples kissed like this. He would kiss females like this regardless of age, which on one occasion led to many people leaving the church. Everybody's kissing each other. You know, I guess the thing was, you know, the holy kiss. The pastor preached, greet the brethren with a holy kiss was written five times in the New Testament. So everybody's like hugging and kissing, giving each other a kiss. And that, that's on the lips? Yeah. Like in church? Like in front of everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't just him. It was those that were brave enough, you know, with with each other, you know, just because you come and you greet, you greet each other with the holy kiss. Well, what's the holy kiss? It says, kiss on the lips with the holy kiss, and then he just went a step farther. Oh, and then he started, he got in on the holy consecrated kiss, where some people actually, like he was French kissing some of the women. Yeah. And, and I was... I just started going to church there. I was maybe for two weeks or so, and somebody somebody told me that, oh, yeah, he French kisses the women. I, I'm like, he doesn't French kiss the women. I said, they just so they just kiss on the lips. So I did, when I went to the church the next time, I talked to him about it. The pastor put his hands around the back of my head and pulled me up and to his face, and then he stuck his tongue in my mouth. And he kind of French kissed me, and then, and then he told me I had a sick mind. So, Tom started this thing. Um, I don't remember when, but he started French kissing women, and he said that it was so that the women could deal with their lust, and encouraged everybody to do it, and 
evidently he, from what I heard, did it to a young teenage girl. The father and the mother also attended the church. And then, so then that just spread through like wildfire throughout the church. And I'd say probably a couple hundred people left. While the Holy Kiss ceased after this incident, kissing on the lips remained the greeting between all church members. Now, we're going to take a look at some of Smith's followers, as I'm sure most of you may wonder what kind of a person would join this group in the first place. Keep in mind, the majority of his most devout followers were between the age of 16 and 22 when they joined. But before I look into their personal experiences, I did some digging into what kind of climate they grew up in. Remember, most everyone joined in the late 70s or early 80s, so they were raised in the 60s and 70s. And most people think of free love, sex, drugs, rock and roll as the overarching theme of that time. But there's a lot more going on that affects society in that era. For starters, you have the Cold War. And I can't remember where I heard it, but I remember someone saying, being alive during the Cold War, especially the earlier decades, was like having a loaded gun pointed at your head everywhere you went. Then you have the Vietnam War, which was dividing groups of people, stressing trust between civilians and the government, and drafts over 2 million people into the war. In fact, I remember one of my high school teachers telling our class about the draft. He said he would lay in his room in the dark, listening to the lottery numbers being announced on the radio, praying his number wouldn't get called. Then there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a nuclear standoff between the US and the Soviet Union, which was weeks of millions of people basically expecting every day to be their last. Then add to that, the civil rights movement was going on, the war on drugs began, and on top of many things I don't even know about, there's a decline in the manufacturing industry, which helps push the country into a recession. There's a lot going on. Things are tense, and have been for years, which left many people looking for stability and guidance. While on the other hand, there were people who were a little more insulated from some of these issues by wealth. You know, rich kids from well-to-do families. But some of them were rebelling against the comfort and stagnancy of their lives, and were looking for something more. Now, the concept of rejecting wealth might seem like a foreign concept to most people, especially those without it. But a quote by G.K. Chesterton helped me wrap my mind around it. He once said, quote, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. End quote. And I would add to that that hopelessness comes from being weary of pain, which seems to affect people more exposed to the former points that we made. So it seems you have a number of youths in that era searching for meaning and hope. And where can you find both of those things? Usually, religion. Now getting to the personal experiences of the young people that joined the Bride of Christ, Almost all of them came from terrible home lives or experienced something unpleasant in life and for various reasons felt like they needed what the church was offering. And I think the best explanation I've heard came from a TED talk by Diane Ben Scooter, I think it's pronounced, called How Cults Rewire the Brain. I'm going to paraphrase, but I think it's pretty close. Essentially, she said, if we think of the ideologies of cults as a virus, who would we expect it to have the greatest effect on? Those who are immunocompromised, right? So when we look at people who end up in cults, the majority of the time, it's people who have encountered some damaging life experience, or lack something and feel a void in them, or people who, whether they know it or not, crave direction and community. That sounds like everyone to some degree, but put on a spectrum, there are people who are more susceptible to these ideological viruses. From the time I was born until age 12, we'd moved, I would say, no less than 50 times. I mean, we moved everywhere in and around Oakland. My mom would just wake us up in the middle of the night sometimes, 
I mean, literally, the middle of the night and just say, grab what you can, put it in the car, let's go. And that happened so many times that we never even thought twice about it. Do you guys know why? Well, drugs. Drugs and somebody coming after them. Everything around our whole life was drugs. Whether it was speed, whether it was heroin, um, crank, a lot of weed. But there was, I mean, drugs was just a part of growing up. I mean, I first time I ever got high, I was nine years old. And I got it from my mom's boyfriend. I remember sitting, we're sitting in a room like this size. It was their bedroom. I was sitting at the bottom of the bed on the floor. We were watching Dragnet on TV. And uh, he was, he fired up a joint and he said, here, you want it? You know, want some? I'm like, yeah, I'm a nine-year-old kid. And then from then on, it was just normal to be getting high. Really? Yeah. I remember when I was 11 and my mom and Dwayne were going out that night and Lisa and Felicia were going to San Francisco, 12 and 13 years old, going to San Francisco to party. And my mom knew about it. They told my mom and they got all dressed up and they were going across the bay to keep me company. And that was that their exact words. To keep me company, they gave me a quarter ounce of weed. I came in one day, found her on the floor, just out. I thought she was dead. <laughs> I think I was 10 or 11. And, I, you know, I called the ambulance, called 911. And they took her to the hospital, pumped her stomach. Growing up was, I mean, I would, I would sit there at the kitchen table and watch junkies shoot up and ask them questions about it, you know. How do you know if, you know, you're hitting your vein? You know, what what does it feel like? All kind of, I just was real interested. It looked kind of not cool or neat, but it looked interesting what they did. I never shot up. I would never want to. Mm -hmm. But it was normal to watch junkies shoot up in my house. <laughs> Ask them why they heated up the stuff in the spoon, you know. And yeah. Anyhow, my mom was a, you know, she was a hooker. She did that kind of stuff. And, uh. We, we had moved back and forth to Klamath a lot. Um, I lived with Uncle Mark and Aunt Gloria a couple of times. And one of the times I lived with them, I didn't want to go live back with my mom. But uh, it became a real big fight in Klamath. I remember the cops were involved in everything. And Felicia was there too. And she didn't want to go back with my mom at that time. Lisa went back with my mom. And then finally, when it all got hashed out, I guess, I mean, as the kids, we had nothing to say about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing we had to say was, I don't want to go back with mom. When we finally did go back with my mom, she was just, you met my mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was livid, man. But And Lisa said, mom was going to kill you. She was going to kill you and Felicia. Like, really kill you. <laughs> That's how much... <laughs> And my mom was crazy. She she would. She's, I've seen her shoot people. So. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I got tired of all of it, I guess you could say. So one day, I was 12 years old. I told my mom, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm leaving. And she said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Klamath. She said, um, where are you going to stay? I said, oh, I'm going to stay with Chuck. She said, okay, you can stay with Chuck. Don't stay with Gloria and Mark. Who's Chuck? One of her old boyfriends. Gotcha. And uh, and then that summer, I went and lived with Mark and them. I mean, I knew full well I was going to go stay with Uncle Mark. Yeah. 
Um, he left when I was eight years old. And if I'm not mistaken, right around that time, that's when they murdered that one Black Panther guy. Oakland police went into his house. I mean, they literally murdered the guy. And so Uncle Mark, you know, he saw the writing on the wall. They were going to come after him. And uh, they moved up to... They, they told us they were moving to Arizona. But they really moved to Oregon. And then uh, a couple years later, Uncle Mark got killed. And then me, Bobby, and Edward were on our own. If you, if you don't mind me asking uh, how, how he did die. Um, he was he was out of town one night. It was summertime. And uh, it was warm. Because uh, we were outside at, at a friend's birthday party at the bottom of the hill. And, you know, Uncle Mark was out of town. He, we thought he was in Portland. And we didn't think he was home or going to be home anytime soon. We, we weren't worried about it because we weren't doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. We weren't out late past what we were supposed to be. But we got home, which is up on the hill, up on the cabin, about, I'd say, 10 o'clock that night. 10, 10.30 maybe, which wasn't late. And when we got there, we saw Mark's truck. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> Mark's home. <laughs> Let's just go to bed, okay? So we were all quiet. Me and Bobby went in our room, and Everett went into his room. And uh, I'm sitting on my bed, taking off my boots. Bobby's sitting right next to me, taking off his boots. And Uncle Mark comes, gets out of bed, and he's and he has to walk past our doorway, which we don't have a door. Just to, we had kind of a curtain. He walked past our doorway, yelling at Everett for driving too fast up the hill, up the mountain. For one thing. It's impossible to drive fast up the mountain. There's so many rocks and ruts. You just, we've never driven fast up the mountain, ever. It just, it doesn't make any sense. It's not fun, and uh, you can't do it, Mm -hmm. um, let alone at night. Mm -hmm. So we always drove nice and easy, took it easy. Anyhow, it was, I don't know why he was yelling at him, because it it was wrong, it wasn't right. And he's yelling at Everett. And he walks past our doorway, and he has to round a corner to go into Everett's room. And uh, the last time we got a spanking from Uncle Mark, well, a beating, Everett said, "He's not gonna, he's not gonna do that again. I'll kill him." And of course, me and Bobby are like, "Yeah, right, whatever." Well, that night he walked past our bedroom, rounded the corner, we're taking off our boots, waiting for Everett to get beat, <laughs> and we heard him. And it was the funniest sound. I mean, it, w- it was louder than a firecracker, but it was just weird because it was, you know, a gunfire, gunshot mm-hmm. in the house. I thought, what the heck was that? And then, pow, 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 pow. Everett was just unloading that thirty thirty into him. And he was screaming. I mean, he was horrified. He was saying, Everett, don't kill me. <sighs> he said, Everett, don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And he was, Everett had backed him up into our room. I mean, we're sitting there and here he comes. He's stumbling backwards in our room and he's holding his hands like that and he's just blowing his fingers off. I mean, it, it was really bizarre. And he fell down about from here to that wall away from me on the ground and he's sitting on the ground, you know, full of 30-30 shells. 
And Everett's just standing over him. Blam! Blam! And then click. He emptied it. So he's just standing there for like 10 seconds. Not even just click, 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 click. Still shooting with no nothing happening. And then finally, I guess he realized he wasn't shooting anymore. And he ran out of the house or ran out of the cabin. He jumped in the truck and I ran right after him. I jumped in the truck with him and I thought, oh, crap. We can't leave Uncle Mark there. We got to get him to the hospital. So I jumped out of the truck, ran back in the house, and Everett just took off. And uh, me and Bobby, I don't know how we moved him. He was so heavy. And we were, what, 14-year-old? We were scrawny little kids. But somehow we got him in the back of the pickup truck. And we're driving down the hill. And halfway down... The guy's house that we were at having the birthday party, his dad was a, a volunteer firefighter paramedic. Mm-hmm. His dad and another guy were driving up. So we, we met him halfway. And they jumped in the truck that I was in, and I jumped in the truck that they were in. That's the last time I saw Uncle Mark. Now, I'm not making excuses for anyone. At the end of the day, you are the master of your own fate. But being exposed to circumstances like that isn't doing an individual any favors. And almost all of them came from unfortunate, or at least less than ideal, backgrounds. As a child, another member witnessed her father commit suicide. Others were victims of sexual abuse. Some were drug addicts. And some had done terrible things in the military. Like one who was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force and had killed who knows how many people every time he dropped a bomb. And whether this is true or not, I'd like to believe it is, as this individual wasn't one to ever tell a lie. But he said during the Korean War, the military decided they were going to nuke Korea, and he was going to be the pilot to drop it. He said he was sitting on the runway with it attached to his plane, waiting for the order to take off. And at the last second, they called it off. Now even if you didn't have to do it in the end, imagine the weight of that. Others that joined came from poor, divorced, or abusive families. And some, like we mentioned earlier, came from good or affluent homes but had found no meaning in their comfortable lives. If any of those scenarios are your life, and suddenly you find a place that makes you feel welcome, included, seen, heard, gives you community, and a sense of meaning and safety, that place sounds pretty good. Now if you add to that a man who also offers you salvation through his divine leadership, well, that's a recipe to make some pretty devout followers. So once people joined the church, their day-to-day lives changed. They still went to work, but outside of that, their life was the church. Encouraged by the pastor, They cut off contact with friends because they were, what he deemed, of the world. And it was frowned upon if they associated with non-members at all, outside of witnessing or business. Then, of course, the more devout you were, and the more sacrifices you made, the more you were praised, and the more favor you were shown. So those that removed themselves from the world and followed Smith's teachings naturally gained his approval. And this exodus from the world extended to their families as well. Smith would question if his followers were a part of Christ's family, or their worldly family. He would quote Matthew 10:34 through 37, parts of which say, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Smith also validated familial separation by saying, quote, We know from the scriptures that we honor parents who are doing the will of God. We cannot honor parents who are not. End quote. And one couldn't keep in contact with family even if they identified as Christian because the will of God and the bride of Christ was interpreted by Smith. So by the end of this, almost everyone would go two decades without speaking to their parents, 
families, or friends. Why did you not talk to your families? Because he told us not to. Now, I mean, that's that's the reason. Well, it was it was basically fellowship. You know, you don't fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's what the Bible says. And, you know, you witness to your family, and if they don't want to hear your witness, well, then you've done your part, and now, basically, they are the unfruitful works of darkness because they're not believing Jesus the way you believe Jesus. If your family wanted to come visit, or if you were in contact with your family, then yeah, that was that was not a good thing. Um, you'd be like kind of in, it depends on the situation, but you'd be like kind of in trouble or under the microscope because it'd be like, well, hey, why is your family coming to visit? You know what's going on? Where are you at, brother? You know, are you? You what are you thinking about leaving? Are you? You know, you are you going? And it wasn't just leaving the church. You couldn't leave the church. You were going back to the world. That's what that's what it was. You you didn't want Jesus anymore. So And Tom had every adult in that church write their families and tell them that they were whores and they were prostitutes and that they were undeserving of God's love and that they would never see them again. I remember that kind of started in Vegas. You know, where he would just slowly work that in, you know, that Whoever it is, not just your family, but anybody that doesn't believe what he was teaching, you're not to have fellowship with him. You know, they're the works of darkness or whatever. Yeah, if you had friends or family that wanted to be in contact with you or you wanted to be in contact with them, he he was, you know, said he was like the shepherd that was protecting his flock from the wolves that would try to come and, you know, steal away and take away from the flock. And uh, as far as reading the letters, the incoming and outgoing letters, you know, he read everything. and They would read them, you know, Tom and Sue would read them to get, get their approval or disapproval of what you said in the letter. And uh, my mom, I, man, I know, I can't remember what was in the letter, but I remember Tom not liking what I said to my mom. I think it had to do something with... You know, I, I said something like, well, I'll see you later or I'll be seeing you or something like that. And he got all mad because he's like, well, how do you know you'll see her later? And what are you saying? And stuff like that. And I don't remember how it happened. But, yeah, I wrote a letter to my parents and said I don't want anything to do with it. But, you know, we couldn't talk to him anyway. You know, I don't know what the letter did because it was probably it was pretty much established. Looking back at it now, I don't see what the point of the letter was, you know, more of a be mean to my parents that had to break their heart when they got that letter he needed us to be 100% committed to the church and I think that's a sad thing because why are you so afraid of if your doctrine is so right why are you so worried that people are going to be influenced out of it you know for me I think the sad thing is he had us so convinced that our families were our enemies you know our families in, in the world quote were our enemies that we actually separated on our own. We separated from them because, you know, they aren't, they're not like us. They're not a part of us. And, you know, leave your mother and father. And, you know, those are the scriptures he always threw out at us because he tried to get us so that we were family and no outside family could be a part of us. And even my parents that sent tithes and everything else for years to the church because my father wouldn't 
leave his job and come out here with us. That's what turned him away from my parents. And my dad, my, my dad and mom had written him a letter. And my dad told him, he said, I feel very sorry for you. You're a very hateful man. But there were some things that he did that I think really weren't necessary. I don't think he needed to have that much control over us. But obviously he thought he did. And he, and his, he kept it scriptural in the sense, you know, we're in the New Testament where Jesus says, you know, I, oh, I'd have to find the right scripture. But it's, it's basically saying, I'm not coming to put people together. I'm coming to separate, you know, father from son and mother from daughter and you know, people of your own family will hate you. You know, you're going to be separate from your family. The Bible says so kind of thing. But it was it was all out of context, man. It was just the more I see now, the less love I see that was in our church. When mail would come from our family, the pastor wouldn't give it to us. My mom wrote a letter. This letter was written in 1990. And I didn't know anything about this letter until I left the church in the year 2000. Ten years before I ever knew that the letter existed. Valerie had it. But, you know, she worked in the office. Mm-hmm. You remember we had the office there? He gave it to her and told her not to give it to me. She was my wife and she didn't give it to me. She didn't even know, I didn't know nothing about this letter until I had left the church. And, and then she mails me this letter and says, the letter your mom wrote. And on the way home, when I left Oregon, I was on the bus, and I said I was on the bus for four days, and I was had in my mind all the things I was going to tell my mom. I didn't even know about this letter. Had my mom in my mind all the things I was going to tell my mom, you know, when I saw her. Got home and found out she had died two years before. So, well, that was tough for me. That was tough for that. Uh, that I, yeah, but certain things you're not supposed to do to people, especially those that are your brethren. You know, are you afraid that they're going to leave you love your their parents more than they love you what what is the reason for doing something like that afraid they're going to talk you out of the church if you've been in the church at that time what 11 years somebody is going to sweet talk you out of it. you know what i'm saying what's the reason for hiding that but some families didn't relinquish their loved ones to smith so easily and this led to an incident in 1987 one of many that occurred in the u.s during that time and happened still It's something called deprogramming. According to online sources, deprogramming came about in the 70s as a direct response to the bloom of the new religious movements. It was a practice friends and family used to rescue their loved ones from the grips of various cults and cult leaders. The basic concept of deprogramming was to abduct the convert, isolate or restrain them, and attempt to unravel the knot of their beliefs through unconventional re-socialization, such as threats, arguments, lectures, restraints, isolation, and more. Because of its forceful nature, it is often viewed as controversial. Though not all deprogramming incidents were extreme, and some were even aided by law enforcement. The deprogramming incident that occurred in the Bride of Christ, however, was on the more extreme side of the spectrum. The family of one of the members broke into her house one night with pistols and tasers to forcefully rescue the woman and her children from the clutches of Smith. I think it was the week before they got kidnapped. there was a lot of talk on because we had walkie-talkies on the farm, you know, so the girls could get a hold of the other girls out in the field. And the girls heard a lot of uh, Spanish speaking on their walkie-talkies. And, of course, they didn't speak Spanish, so they didn't know what's going on. But it was actually Johnny's relatives that were planning to kidnap them. They kidnapped Johnny? 
and her and the two girls. Yeah, they kidnapped her, the kids. They took her in her bathrobe and everything else and just kidnapped them. <laughs> they stun gunned, uh, they stun gunned Tommy and Miles. I was laying in bed that night. Just went to bed. We went fishing that day, so we went to bed late. And it was, I think it was 12.05. They broke in the house, heard some noise and had flashlights. They hit me in the foot with a stun gun. I thought they shot me. That's what I thought happened. And, uh, you know, a lot of noise and rustling around. They looking in the rooms. They well, actually they knew what rooms they just stepped in. So they surveyed that thing really good. That was so scary for them to be busting in that night. I remember my mom fighting um, with one of them, but I remember them taking her out. We were asleep, and I just remember being fearful because I I did not leave my room, which was at the back of the house. Because I was um, just afraid of what was happening. I could hear a bunch of yelling, uh, a lot of scuffles and banging. My mom said she had one of them pinned, uh, like one of the women, because it wasn't just men. It was it was men and women of her family. Um, but they, they took her. I do know that uh, eventually Johnny and Gloria came back. But uh, there was a big trial. And then I just remember about the trial that they made the church and the people in the church look like a bunch of idiots. And the people that actually did the kidnapping were acquitted. They got off. We thought it was uh, bogus that they made the church look bad and that the people got off for kidnapping. But uh, they had a really good lawyer that made, they said basically the people in the church were all brainwashed. And they were just like uh, uh, frogs that you put in a, a pot when you boil them. They don't know they're being boiled until they're, you know, the water's, until it's too late. <laughs> so we're, we were compared to a bunch of boiled frogs. Um, I thought it was wrong at the time, but then looking back on it over the years, I thought, you know what? At least their family cared about them. <laughs> They thought they were in a bad place, so they tried to get him out. And none of my family ever came after me. We took a little detour there, so getting back on track now. The members gave up their old lives, but their new lives in the early days were enjoyable by all accounts. They met pretty much every day, to some capacity, at night on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, and twice on Sunday. Wednesday night was a sewing and cooking class for the women, while the men went out witnessing. Mondays and Fridays, men and women went out to the city together to witness, while some went around neighborhoods. Others stood on street corners talking to people that passed by and handed out their tracts. One member said, quote, I preferred the women's class to witnessing. The classes were fun. We always laughed and joked around. And at the end of the season, we would take whatever we sewed and parade it in front of the church like a fashion show. Witnessing, on the other hand, was the opposite of fun. We told strangers about judgment and tried to tell them all the ways they didn't know they were sinning. I didn't like doing it, but I thought we were doing the right thing. End quote. She goes on to say sometimes Smith even had members demonstrate wailing and gnashing their teeth prior to going out witnessing, so as to offer a visualization of hell to the people they spoke to. On Saturday nights, they had work parties where members would fix up the church property. The women would make food for the work parties, while the men did the physical labor. And this wasn't because women weren't allowed to work. In fact, they often did the same work as the men. Women just weren't allowed to work alongside the men in order to keep their minds pure. And things carried on like that for the next few years. Smith continued to mold his church little by little and insert more and more control, 
and the first people to really be affected by the control were the women. Early on, there were no requirements for female members, but then he introduced wearing head coverings and what he considered appropriate clothing, followed by not allowing makeup or jewelry, things he called the garments of whores. Then the women were called to humble themselves before men and do things like sit on the floor if there wasn't enough room for men on the couch. They were also to refer to their husbands as Lord and directed not to speak with authority to men and certainly never preach to them. Smith touched on this in a newsletter, saying, quote, Our women will gladly share with other women, but before men, they're to remain shamefaced. End quote. He goes on to quote the Bible in 1 Timothy 2.12, saying, Suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp the authority of a man. In a very conservative church, this could seem like a normal concept, but Smith often took things above and beyond, and it didn't take long for women to find themselves with less and less freedom as time went on. Even Smith's wife, Susan, advocated for the submission of women, though as the pastor's wife, she enjoyed significantly more comforts than the others. She even wrote a tract of her own that was full of rhetoric about the role of Christian women. Here are a few lines from it. She starts by writing, quote, The scripture says that we are to convict people of their sin. The purpose of this tract is to do just that. Anti-Christian feminine behavior is rampant today. Women are so vain, they are ignoring God's commandments. As Christians, we are to have long hair, we are to wear a head covering to show our submission to Christ through our male headship, and we are to be holy in apparel and conversation. Women are spending billions of dollars yearly to try and improve on God's creation. Do they think they know better than the Lord Almighty? It is impossible to remain shamefaced when you look like a Jezebel. End quote. And there's more in there condemning female pastors, homosexuals, and modern-day feminism, but you get the point. This, by the way, is the stuff they were passing out to strangers on the street. Kind of makes you wonder how many women they drew in with that kind of propaganda. But by the mid to late 80s, the call for women to live by this etiquette evolved into discipline for not adhering to it. A husband could be called to slap his wife in front of the church or administer discipline at home, which could be a variety of things. Getting hit with a belt, being put out of the fellowship, which was a form of shunning we'll explain later, shaving their heads or having their children taken for a time, among other things. A lot of the beliefs they took were from the Jewish ways, the old Jewish ways, but they never took any of the good of the Jewish ways, you know, mm -hmm. um, any of the positive of it. Everything was a negative. Women are evil. Women are the cause of all sin. Women are responsible for everything. You know, if a man is led astray, it's the woman's fault. With men, women were to look at the ground. They weren't allowed to meet a man's eyes. They were to look at the ground. Their head were covered. They were to call the husband Lord. Um, they were, they didn't have opinions. They did what they were gold regardless. And if a man was in a bad spot, well, then you do what he's told anyways. And God and the pastor would deal with the man. And God forbid anybody said anything to him. God was the only one who would correct him. And mm -hmm. we were just to blindly submit to our husbands, to our church, and to our pastor. It was not a loving subservient. It was a master-servant subservience. And uh, it was, but then there was this, the women were played against the men all the time in, the, in this competition. Well, the women do this, this, and this, and then. It was, well, the men do that. And so it was a constant man versus woman. You know, it, it, in, in no way was it ever this natural, harmonious thing, you know. It was always um, somebody pitted against the other, you know. 
and um, it, it it wasn't a joyous submission at all. I don't, I don't. I can't even remember how it all went. I just remember um, the pastor saying something about it. I don't even know how it went. But next thing you know, everybody in church had to slap their spouse, and it was crazy. Man, I I remember I slapped your mom. I didn't want to. I thought, man, we're going to get kicked out of church. I mean, there was no reason, none. Your mom was a good woman. And I thought to myself that day, too. I thought, man, there's no reason for this. This, this, you know, maybe that spouse over there did something stupid or that spouse did something stupid. But she, she works hard. She takes care of the kids. She takes care of the farm. There's no reason for it. You can see there is a breaking down of personality here. Smith calls for the women to submit themselves to their husbands, and for everyone to submit themselves to him. And along with that, he began promoting humble and timid traits. You know, being submissive is a good thing, God hates vanity. But his interpretation of humility translated to, do what I tell you and don't think for yourself. And to enforce that, he publicly berated anyone that he felt posed a threat or wasn't falling in line. And that behavior trickled down the ranks. It wasn't just him keeping people in line. Everyone made sure no one got too big for their britches, even the kids. I recall multiple times the adults would, for lack of a better term, bully the preteen boys and girls. If they believed one of the youths was getting too cocky, they literally pushed them around, yelled at them, held them on the ground, sprayed things up their nose, and mocked them while doing it. They called this humble pie. But things didn't quite escalate to that point until after the church left Vegas and moved to rural Oregon. And the church would move around a lot over the next 20 years and own properties in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. But it's the move to Oregon that we'll focus on because it was this event that brought about the biggest change in the church. So to begin, Smith decided to leave Vegas for a few reasons. And the one that got the ball rolling was a gamble I've personally never seen the benefit of, and that's predicting the end of the world. A lot of religious cult leaders do this, but the reason I find it precarious is because it's a lot of risk and no reward. If you get it right, no one is going to be around to congratulate you. And if you get it wrong, you lose credibility. Well, he got it wrong. His prediction was that the rapture would happen in 1984, so he set himself up to be married to his most devout follower, Susan, on the night he gave the prophecy. He told his prediction to anyone that would listen, and said, quote, If Jesus doesn't come back when I say, then I am a false prophet. End quote. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, the rapture didn't happen when he claimed it would, but Smith explained it away by saying a rapture had happened, it was just a spiritual rapture rather than a physical one. While this explanation sufficed for some of his followers, a large group left, and Smith was marked by them and the community as the very thing he accused others of being, a false prophet. So between his slander of other churches, his failed prophecy, and the gossip surrounding his strange practices, his reputation hit an all-time low. No new members were joining, and he believed it was time to go. He said, quote, The ground here will no longer bear any fruit. It's time to kick the dust off our feet and move on. End quote. Lastly, Even with his failed prophecy, Smith still had his followers convinced the world was soon coming to an end. And in preparation of the end times, he planned to create a self-sufficient utopia and initiate a form of communal living he called Christian Socialism, which he based off a kibbutz from Hebrew culture and the Acts Church of the New Testament. He referenced verses in Acts 2.44-45 to show God's stamp of approval on his idea. It reads, And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. It's important to note that almost everything he did, he backed up with passages from the Bible. 
have his newsletters and pamphlets were Bible verses. That way anyone who identified as a Christian and didn't agree with him wasn't arguing with him, they were arguing with God, which made them the Antichrist, and of course, any non-Christian opinions didn't matter. So Smith spent the months prior to the church's move selling the idea of his self-sustaining Eden, where they could live away from a corrupt society and have everything they needed while the rest of the world burned, living out the last days in peace until the return of their savior. He then wrote up bylaws for their new lifestyle, in which he stated things like, This is a nonprofit organization in which all members' basic needs will be met, food, shelter, clothing, medical, etc. All members are to sell their possessions and give that money to the church. Upon being an accepted member, that person will no longer be allowed to own property, real or personal. They are required to live in church housing, all work done for the church is voluntary, and you will not be paid unless the law requires it. Then it would be minimum wage, which you turn right back over to the church because you're also not allowed to have money. And by the way, if you leave, you have no rights to any money or property owned by the church. There were also yearly meetings written into the bylaws where they could vote to change things they didn't like or add things they thought would be beneficial. But these meetings never occurred. In fact, everyone seemed to have forgotten that was even in the clause. But regardless of how things turned out, this is how he sold it. He had got uh, a revelation. He said that God spoke to him and told him that by the end of 1985, the Lord was going to come back. He had a testimony. And the night that him and Susan got married, he had prophesied in one of the tracks that Jesus was coming back at midnight on the first. So he really believed that when him and Susan got married at midnight, that Jesus was going to come back. Hmm. And when Jesus didn't come back, that's why the first group split off from the church. In in Vegas, the way it was taught and the way we looked at it was the people that were leaving, they didn't want to be a part of Jesus anyway. The people that were staying were, were only becoming stronger mm-hmm. in the Lord and with one another. You know, we didn't. We never even, never even thought of us to not believe in him. And if... Another thing that I look back on is almost immediately after that is when we all moved to Oregon. Never put that together back then, but it was almost immediately that we started moving to Oregon to start the act, to live the Acts Church. Well, the pastor was reading out of uh, the book of Acts and it said, you know, how everybody had all things in common and they put everything in a pot. And he said, this is how we're going to do it. He said, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. See you later. And if you're going to stay here, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to throw everything in a pot and everybody's going to be taken care of. And it started in Vegas. And like I said, there was people that had really good jobs. And then there was us construction workers <laughs> making like five, six bucks an hour. <laughs> um, anyhow, that's what we did. Everybody that had a job got a paycheck, gave their, signed their paycheck over to the church. And then the church took care of everybody, paid everybody's bills, everybody's insurance, um, house payments. There was a collection of wealth. The pastor collected the money, paid off some things. You know, I guess he determined what needed to be paid off, what needed to be counted or lost. You know, that was all done through, through, you know, through the church leadership, through the pastor. And if you had certain things, like I said, if you had a house, you sold that. You know, you paid off as much of your stuff, and if there was money, let's say we sold our house. We sold our house. We had, you know, we had a little equity in it. So the extra money went to the church to help other people pay their stuff. 
some people start moving in together with each other. And then we did that. I, I don't know. I think we did that for about six months, eight months. And that a lot of people left then. I mean, the church really pared down. And then the pastor said, we're going to move to Oregon. Um, the witness wasn't any good in Vegas anymore. Nobody really wanted to hear it. So He wanted to move out of the city. And he thought that things were going to be, be bad. But anyway, we went to Oregon because things were going to be bad. He figured that the economy was going to be bad. We had to live in places where we grow our own food, you know, and the cities would be pretty much decimated. He said that we're going to move to Oregon and live the Acts Church where everybody had all things in common. And so we were all excited about that. We were going to go farm in Oregon. Who doesn't? I mean, even today, who doesn't want to go farm and be self-sufficient? And that's where everybody had all things common. All the guys worked in the construction. The women watched kids and um, and worked the farm. All the money went to them. They did all the money, all the bills. We never saw money where the bills for 20 years. Then we never, then we were completely isolated. We all moved away from our families. We left our friends. We went to another state. We were isolated after that. And then that was it. It was the next step. Jesus was coming and we were all going to go be self-sufficient where we could survive when the world ended and the turbulation happened, which we were going to be raptured, but we were preparing to be Mm. self-sufficient so we didn't have to depend on the world. And really, he went into hiding because he was shown a false prophet. (laughs) But Mm. none of us saw that. And just what I learned as an adult, like, I didn't know this until I came to Texas, but, like, at the time, I did not know that Tom Smith was charged with molesting his own daughters. I didn't know that was the real reason we were moving to Oregon. My, what I was told and what I was taught, it was like, we're moving to Vegas because it's Sin City and Vegas is going to burn and Judgment Day and all this. So we were going to Oregon, the land of milk and honey. But that, in truth, now is because he was going to have to register in the state of Nevada as a sex offender. And so in, in Oregon at the time, you didn't have to do that. So in the winter of 1984, the Bride of Christ Church moved to the small town of Azalea, Oregon. When they moved, they lost about half their members, and the number before fluctuated. People joined here and there, but groups left when Smith French kissed a young girl, and more left when his prophecy didn't come true. But it went from about 250 to 120, basically overnight. Some of those who didn't go were already on the verge of leaving anyway, while the rest simply did not want to move or pool their wealth. Smith didn't seem to mind. He acted like he pitied them and used them as a lesson saying only the true disciples were going to make it. The path to heaven is narrow, that that had been a test of their faith, and they failed. Things like that. Anyhow, those that remained went all in and made the move to Oregon. And to say things started off a little bumpy would be an understatement. In fact, one thing every member seems to agree on is that the first years after the move almost pushed them to their breaking point, mentally and physically. Everyone worked around the clock to bring forth Smith's communal utopia, and they did it with barely any food. The men, women, and children looked emaciated the first six months to a year. Only the pastor and his wife seemed to maintain a healthy weight. They crammed multiple families into one home until they could afford to buy more, and the men worked to the point of exhaustion. Many of them reported hallucinating while on the job. The women worked at the cabinet shop but mostly homeschooled the children, and the children were decently educated. It was the duty of all the women to teach the kids, but a couple women were the designated teachers and a class was set up at one of the homes where they taught reading, writing, math, and Spanish. Health, science, and social studies were not part of the curriculum. 
The women also maintained households, the church building, and tended the farms and livestock that were purchased over time. For money, the men worked at the two companies started by the church, a construction company, where they worked during the day, and a cabinet shop, where they worked at night. I mean, I liked our life. You know, the kids were homeschooled or they had, you know, we had a little school set up on uh, on our property at the farm, at the sixplex. Kurt was a teacher, her and Carolyn, and she'd teach the kids. And after school, they'd come out and work. And, you know, I love going to sleep listening to the sprinklers and the cow's hoofs hitting the pipes as they walk by and, you know, the chickens clucking. And, you know, I, I like that life. I like the harvesting. I, I liked being a farmer. And we had a decent little group there with us, and I loved our life. I loved farm life. And it was decent for a long, and, you know, I delivered the babies, and, you know, there was was good. I mean, it wasn't all bad. It it was good. It It was just life. I mean, it's not like it was easy street, but it was life. And the pastor said, and he said, you know, when we get more established, more on our feet, Everybody will have their own home, you know, people will have their own houses or farms or whatever. But for now, you know, we really got to put our nose to the grindstone and get things going because, you know, we're starting over fresh and new. And, you know, we're all gung-ho. We're all, we're all sold out uh-huh. right now. The people that were there are sold out. For the most part, everybody that left Vegas to go to uh, Oregon was pretty hardcore. Uh, the women and children went up first. And then the guys were were working. All the guys were doing construction and working at the cabinet shop. There were guys that only worked at the cabinet shop, but the guys that did construction worked both. And man, I remember working 16, 18 hour days, day after day after day. I remember I lived off of a, a Big Gulp 7-Up and a Snickers candy bar every day after work from the construction to the cabinet shop because I didn't eat. I mean, I had nowhere to go to eat. So there was logistical things that weren't worked out. (laughs) And the first, I'd say the first year, uh, maybe the first six to eight months were just brutal, brutal months. Um, You know, we were ill-equipped as far as clothing to work in Portland. Portland's a cold, wet place to work. I remember freezing to death in Portland. And the food situation was horrible because the people that were distributing the food were religious zealots. And that's all I'll say about that. (laughs) And they figured we could live off of nothing. And we were starving. We were literally starving. Everyone was bone thin. We, everybody had soup called manna and it was just a quarter pound of meat per person. And, it was all made into this really watery soup and whatever greens we could grow. And that's what everybody ate. And everybody was so thin. The kids were thin. The babies were thin. They were crying. The pregnant women, everybody, but the men were thin. And I mean, I weigh, well, back then I was five foot six. I weighed 140 pounds, which was, you know, okay for me. I think I weighed 112 pounds. I was skin and bones. And we were starving. I mean, we some of us were, I mean, sneaking out in the morning, going to, like, plum trees in the neighborhood and getting plums or getting apples or blackberries. And we were eating food off the road 
We used to go to dumpsters and get food out of the dumpsters. Bags of donuts and stuff and share them with everybody. Because we weren't getting food. We were only getting a little portion. So I used like one pound of, pan- one pound of hamburger for 25 people. And that's how it went. A lot of people did, you know, a lot of people couldn't handle it. And, um, and we were, and we were so dirt poor. We, like 17 of us and all our kids lived in, they bought like one house on with seven rooms in it. And all the women and kids lived in there. We were like sardines. And then, um, they bought little places and then would move everybody in like a duplex. And then, you know, but always even in a duplex, there was like, you know, three women and all their kids. And, those were lean times. So we were, every other weekend we came home. So two weeks in Portland, weekend home. Two weeks in Portland, weekend home. Did that for years. And the pastor said, once we get going, you guys won't have to do that. You won't have to work that much. Psh, whatever. But all we did was work. And so we were getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, going to work, getting to the cabinet shop at 5 we took about an hour break, and then we were making cabinets from 6 to midnight, sometimes 6 to 1 o'clock. And then we'd go home, get four hours of sleep. Actually, I think we stopped even going to church at that time. We were just working all the time. I remember hallucinating at the—I worked uh, in the face frame department, and I was at the boring machine. And I remember hallucinating. I was so tired. I had a similar experience. I was at the cabinet shop at night, and my job was, well, I had two jobs. One was planing the rough saw lumber to a straight edge with a planer, and then the other one was uh, uh, working a chop saw. I'd cut all the miters for the doors. And I'm sitting there working this miter saw, has all these cuts all night long, just cutting, cutting, cutting. And I swore, I, I looked up, because I thought I was on the job site and I was looking at somebody up on a beam and I looked up and I saw the corner of the ceiling and I realized I was hallucinating while I was working that chop saw. I was that tired. And there's guys that had left the cabinet shop and fell asleep at a, at a red light in the street. So, I mean, everybody was tired. We we're all tired. Laziness never was really a thing. No, no, nobody was allowed to be lazy because he would drive by and boy, if you were standing for two minutes on your shovel, he'd be screaming at you. And nobody wanted to leave the work for somebody else to do. That was shameful. There was nobody there who did that. So laziness wasn't a thing. So our kids didn't get to be kids. You know, we, we didn't get to be married because all we did was work. And if you didn't work, you were in trouble. And that included with your kids, that included with your husband, that included with each other. Um, and then we gave all our money to the pastor and then they would provide us food, you know, and God forbid you should ask for something they didn't think you should get. And if you said, you know, they say, bring me your grocery list and you bring, okay, I need mayo, I need cereal, I need this, this, and this. They say, how dare you say you need, you say, please, can I have, and you get what you get. That's when I was going to leave because we weren't really doing what I thought we were going to go up there and do. I knew, I thought, well, nobody's ever going to join our church. Nobody's coming up here. I mean, we're not, we're not even talking to other people now. We used to go out and witness, and now we're not even going out to witness anymore. Because it was like the time, time of the Gentiles was over, he said. And plus, we were told, you know, when we went up to Oregon, we thought the rapture was going to happen. Or we thought the tribulation period was going to start. 
And I knew if I left that my wife wasn't going to leave with me. And, you know, and I loved my kids, so I wasn't going to leave them. And I, there was guys that just said, nope, this isn't the life for me. And they just left. And it got down to 22 guys. I remember thinking, you know, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> this is crazy. But then I thought to myself, you know, if this is all I have to do for Jesus, I mean, this is it. Be tired and work. I can do this. And I did. I mean, it, it just, I just pushed right through it and overcame, I guess you could say. Things were rough, and people worked themselves nearly to death for months to get by. And by the end of the first year when more money was coming in, you'd think things would ease up, start getting better. But it didn't. It got much, much worse. The people that left everything behind in Vegas and came to Oregon were in for the long haul. And Smith knew it, because not long after the church moved, the real militants, control, and cruelty began. One member reflecting on the change in the pastor's behavior thought it was due to his prophecy about the rapture, saying that when it didn't happen, as he believed it would, he became bitter and took it out on his followers. Other members, however, said it wasn't really that he changed at all. If you knew him, he was always like that. But when he felt like his place of power was solidified, he stopped trying to hide it. Perhaps both reasons were true. Or maybe it was something else altogether. But one thing's for certain. Things had changed. And it was only for the worse. He said he is a prophet. He was there to spread the word. And God speaks to him directly. And he's a prophet to end, to warn everybody in the end times. And he even went on the news and said, Jesus is coming at that. Nobody knows a day and hour, but he didn't say he wouldn't be here in the year. And he was on the news and said, if Jesus doesn't come in this year, then I am a false prophet. And it's almost like when Jesus didn't come the night he thought he would, and he moved us to Oregon, all of a sudden he felt this power because he was different. I mean, that's when it was like dad's coming down the driveway and we're all pooping in our pants. You know, it's like, what's he going to say? Is he coming with a whip? Is he coming with a, you know, and that's how it began. When we came up to Oregon, dad went from this loving pastor to a, um, a taskmaster. In, in Vegas, it was happy and smiling and actually fellowshipping and, you know, like food and happy witnessing, you know, and bringing people and doing things together and, you know, actually fellowshipping, you know, going out and hiking and, or, you know, fixing cars together or having sewing classes or, you know, playing with the kids or, I mean, fun stuff. And here, and worship was, you know, like, like you literally felt Jesus, you know, it was, it felt spiritual. And then once we got up here, there was, the spirit was gone. So we'd all get together in fellowship beforehand, right? Which really wasn't fellowship. It was miserable. And, uh, you know, you'd come in, you'd say hi, you know, talk, small talk, and then go sit down. And then he'd pray, and then people would stand up and give their testimonies, and usually it was some sin or witnessing, judging somebody. And the longer it progressed, there was never any good testimony. It was always get up and confess your sin. You know, your testimony was, you know, I'm sorry, I, you know, I don't know, who knows, I kicked a rock, who knows. It was just ridiculous. And if the kids fell asleep, oh my God, they were in trouble. And, uh, 
but you'd give your testimony, and then we'd sing, the, the men would sing and play in the band, and then the pastor would read for hours. And it was obligation, and it was shame, and it was fear. There was no joy ever. It was just miserable. He, he acted the same way in the early days as he did later on. But later on, he became more forceful with it. Well, if you remember him, he, he was a short, stocky guy. Sometimes he was like Santa Claus, and sometimes he was um, to be feared. Uh, for the most part, he was to be feared. I mean, I was always kind of scared of him. Um, everybody was nervous around him because he never knew. He, he'd be really happy, and then all of a sudden, you just do one thing, and all of a sudden, you invoked his wrath. The pastor would correct you in the middle of your testimony. You should have done this. Why didn't you say that? And then it got to where he wasn't just correcting you. He was yelling at you and humiliating you. And then you get like put out of fellowship. And there's been times you get hit for what kind of Christian are you? What kind of example are you? And you have one of the brothers come up and pop you one. It was our fault. Or why didn't we do this? Or, you know what I mean? It was like, we were always circumspecting ourselves instead of saying, wait, wait, we didn't do anything. You know, mm-hmm. or it's okay. We, you know, it's okay to make a mistake. There were no mistakes. There were no accidents. It happened because you were in sin and it, you didn't want to see evil. And that was the big thing. None of us wanted to see evil in Tom. He wanted me to do some things that weren't right. He bought a property in Northport, Washington State. It was a house and a barn. He wanted the barn converted to a place to stay in. And we did some things that, you know, by code you weren't supposed to do. We even did some things up there. Uh, you know, when he lived on that hill in the sixplex, or not a sixplex, but on the farm. Now, that, that house up there that he lived in, we weren't supposed to build that house up there. What it did, we tore everything off a trailer frame and built from a trailer frame. We weren't supposed to do that. And he had me to go down to the code office and lie. He had me garage code office and lie and said that it was, that was a trailer. And he knew he was telling me to tell a lie. You know, he, did, he didn't go down there and tell him. He wanted me to do it. See what I'm saying? What Tom would do is he'd, he'd say like, it's like lying wasn't the correct word. You, you're, you're in the spirit and you're doing what God wants you to do. And so God's right. I mean, I've seen it so many times. You know, it's just, it's, it's just the way he worked. It's, and I even, you know, I, I don't know. I used to think, well, man, maybe he really believes that, you know, to him, it's the truth. It's, it's true. And he would just say whatever he needed to say to get done what he wanted to do. And so he, he'd t- bring it across to us as, no, it's not lying. This is the work of God. You know, they're wrong. We're right. So in God's eyes, it's not wrong. In Vegas, it was hellfire. It, the message was always hellfire. Get right or you're going to hell and Jesus is coming. So you don't need to worry about anything else. Get right because Jesus is coming right now and it's going to be any minute and you're going to go to hell and you need to save as many people as you can. Um, but still we laughed. You know, there was laughter. There was, and then there wasn't. <laughs> there was no laughter once we moved up here. But yeah, we still stayed and we still stayed. And we saw things happening. We still stayed. Because 
we loved each other. We loved each other. We loved our brothers and sisters. And we really believed that we were serving God. Perhaps the reason he felt more confident in showing his true colors is due to the fact members were now completely dependent on him. They sold all their belongings and handed over all their wealth to him. He controlled the money, the food, the homes, the cars. They didn't have access to anything and had just cut ties with everyone on the outside. So who were they supposed to turn to if they wanted out? Add to that, at the same time, he stripped away their individuality. Everyone was made to dress in similar, plain clothes, nothing that stood out. Females were not allowed to wear makeup or jewelry. Personal interests became non-existent, and personal possessions were forbidden. Holidays and birthdays were no longer celebrated. Most movies, TV shows, newspapers, and books were not allowed. Any form of entertainment that was permitted had to be approved by the pastor. Certain music was allowed, but Smith would occasionally change his mind and forbid it and have radios and TVs broken or confiscated. And taking photographs was only allowed on rare occasions, leaving almost all children without any photos from their youth and a 20-year gap in the adults' lives. And don't forget, every member believed if they left their profit, they just lost their place in heaven. This is something members struggled with for years even after leaving the church. Smith had found himself in a position of absolute power, and it's because he put himself there. The new reality of members of the Bride of Christ was a total separation from a society they saw as corrupt. Smith talked about this in a newsletter once saying, quote, We find it completely impossible to have our conversation continually in the Lord while others are using foul language and talking worldly conversations, so we come out from among them and are a separate people. End quote. The men still worked in public areas, but the only association they had with non-church members was for business matters. Most of the women and all of the children had no contact at all with the outside world or were not allowed to leave the properties owned by the church. Only a select few were given access to money, able to go out in public to shop, or drive vehicles. No one was allowed to seek out medical attention without Smith's permission, which was rarely given. Smith justified this by saying they were not to look to the world anymore, especially to give the healthcare system, which he called an evil corporation, any of their hard-earned money, and instead, that God would provide. There were multiple occasions, however, when children were so ill, their mothers took them to a hospital despite the pastor refusing their request. In those instances, both mother and child were disciplined. I personally recall being yelled at while someone read out the charges on a bill the church received after my visit to the doctor. But a big part of avoiding medical services meant all births were done at home. Most actually went smoothly, as a trained midwife was a member. But there were still some complications, even deaths. And how Smith dealt with those deaths was disturbing, to say the least. Very, very, very rarely, it had to be bad. Like I took Justin to the hospital to um, the doctor for a hernia. He had a really bad hernia as a baby, and they're like, "Well, we're not going to do surgery on it. We don't have the insurance, so you better pray it gets better." And you know, he doesn't die from it. Okay, first off, why is the kid sick? Well, it must be because your spirit is in the wrong attitude, and and now your kid's getting sick, or. You know, it's your fault that this happened. And if, if say, an accident happened, a kid, you know, fell off of a fence post and hurt his arm. Well, you were going to hear it big time. So you had all the, these fears of what's going to happen if somebody gets sick or, you know, it, it was just it was another one of those mental things. I know they took their dogs to the, to the hospital all the time, the dog vets. Their animals alone were treated better than our children. I was there the night that his baby died. That was tough. That was very sad. You know, what happened because the baby was fine and all of a sudden he was gone. 
I wasn't the head midwife then. I don't know. I got in trouble for, I don't know, forgetting to write down tomato weeds or something. And so I was demoted and shamed. And so Chris took over, who had absolutely zero training. And the baby was born and I was there. But then only one person stayed with her because we always stayed for a day or two with them and, you know, made food for them and took care of the kids and, you know, took care of the house. And uh, I had left and Chris stayed while I was gone. The baby passed away. And I don't know if she took him to the hospital, if she called, if she did CPR, but the baby couldn't be revived. And the pastor told him to bury the baby in the backyard. And they did. We had put him in a little suitcase mm-hmm. and buried him at Tom and Val's house. Over there. That's what was living at the time. That's what I remember anyway. If anybody else remembers it different. I remember helping to dig the hole as a kid, and, and that was traumatic. I'm a kid myself. Like, I was no more 13, 14 years old, but I was one of the ones to help bury. And your mom did the right thing as a midwife. You're supposed to record uh, with the county or whoever you're supposed to record with a birth, mm-hmm. and she did that. Well, when the state or county found out, they had to dig the baby back up. But you're not supposed to bury bodies, I guess. Well, once I filed the death certificate, because that's what I had to do, um, it got investigated, and we had to exhume the baby and have an autopsy done on it. And I could have gone to jail for that. Because it was, I was the one who was certified, not Chris. I was the one who was certified as a midwife in the county. And when he demoted me, it was all still under my name and responsibility. And so um, the autopsy came back and said he there, he was missing his adrenal cortexes on his kidneys. And, uh, and he had passed away. And there was nothing that could have been done about it. I don't believe if I had not done due diligence and reported the death via reporting it filing a death certificate with the county i don't believe it would have ever gone on record i believe he would have let it just go by the wayside as one more way to uh put under the rug the the secret happenings of the church he would have buried the baby and not reported it there were two of them and the first one was a baby that had severe genetic issues and he came early she had fallen down the stairs and the baby's foot poked out and so we took her to the high it was early and we took her to the hospital she says she slipped and fell on the stairs going into the garage and she was maybe like five and a half six months and she said she didn't think nothing about it she went to the bathroom and a foot popped out and so she went to she went over to Stephanie's house. Stephanie told her she had to go to the hospital. Everyone else told her she needed to stay home in bed. And I remember them all praying over it, like her water was suddenly going to go back. She went to the hospital. She had Rusty, but his lungs were underdeveloped. Um, Tom told, according to my mom, Tom told the nurse to take him off life support that they weren't going to keep him on it. And they didn't tell my mom till the next day when she went to go see him and they didn't tell my dad till he came home the following weekend they could have done things to help the baby but he's like we can't pay for this we don't we don't have the money we can't afford it he's putting a strain on the church with the cost of his child and he needs to pull the plug because he's going to go be in heaven anyways 
but I know it was about cost. And I didn't find that out until years later. We just thought the baby died. And they, like, we literally left within days of him passing away. And so that's why he's in an unmarked grave at the county, because they didn't have any of my mom's information. They didn't have any of the church's information. Nothing. Like, they released my mom from the hospital because she didn't have anything to keep her there. And when he told them to take Rusty off life support, he had uh, he had told the hospital that he was Rusty's dad. Tom did. Yes. And I remember her coming home, but I remember asking her, I said, where's the baby? And she said, he's with God. And I said, well, when is he coming home? And she said, he's not. To put things in perspective and give you insight into the pastor's priorities, just one of his personal pets received more medical attention than most, if not all, of the children ever did. Now, it might be obvious to see the lack of equality here, but back then no one saw it or even thought to question it, because questioning the prophet was a sin. Anyways, beyond the inner turmoil, things weren't going so well with the outside community either, because shortly after moving to Oregon, the church literally came under fire over an incident involving rapist Lawrence Singleton, also known as the Mad Chopper. In 1978, Singleton committed a heinous crime in California where he picked up a young girl named Mary Vincent who was hitchhiking from Nevada to Southern California. He took her to a remote location, beat her, drugged her, and raped her. He then cut off her arms and left her for dead off the interstate. About 10 years later, Singleton was let out on parole in 1987. However, Due to the outcry of communities in California, he was not able to leave the prison property and was living in a trailer on San Quentin prison grounds. When Smith heard about this, he reached out to Singleton and invited him to move to Azalea to live with the church. He said he felt an affinity towards man, as Singleton claimed to have found salvation while incarcerated, much the same as Smith did while serving a sentence for his own crime. Smith also made claims that he believed Singleton was innocent. When reporters caught wind of the invitation, they interviewed Smith who happily confirmed it. He told the news about his conversation with Singleton and said, quote, As we talk tonight, he realized there will be persecution, but our home is open. He's got to live somewhere. Society wants to kill him. We just want to help him. End quote. After this public announcement, the locals in the town of Azalea, who were already known to verbally harass the African-American church members, began to protest with violence. Oh yeah, Larry Singleton. Larry Singleton. Well, what happened is... Uh, Larry Singleton, you know, the guy, he, I guess he did his crime. I remember he was a uh, convicted rapist or something. He chopped some girl's arms off, left her in a ditch, raped her, thought he killed her, but he didn't. So Tom believed that he didn't do it. You know, he found something that somebody said somewhere and said, here, see, he didn't even do it. It was, you know, whatever he used to sanctify that. So he was a for release and he was going to go to this town and and they wouldn't let him in he couldn't go back to his hometown or whatever because they wouldn't didn't want him pastor heard about it and said he can come live with us and uh so the pastor you know you know the pastor what he did with his daughter right yeah so he was saying well the man needs a second chance you know because he got a second chance so he said uh you know the state was saying they would find somebody that would take him, they let him go there. So, and then I guess the news got wind of it somehow. <laughs> and man, people in Azalea found out they went ballistic. 
they would drive by and shoot at the sixplex and that's where you guys lived at the time and you know they could have shot through the housing structure and you know killed anybody i mean they would they would shoot at us shoot at our farms um we had big gas tanks out on the side of this uh, one place where we lived at the sixplex. Yeah. They, there's bullet holes in that. It was, it was bad. During that time of upheaval, Smith continued to provoke the community by making brazen comments in the Oregonian newspaper, saying things like, quote, They want to kill us. Just murder every single one of us. But I rebuke them with everything that's in me. And we know we will probably be shot. I've received death threats, but we aren't going to quit. They'll have to kill me first and then they'll have to kill everybody else, end quote. Eventually, it was Singleton who turned down the offer to join the church. After hearing about the commotion the thought of his arrival had caused, he wrote a letter to the church saying he wouldn't feel right putting them through that, and so he would look for housing elsewhere, which was probably for the best, since in 1997, police responded to a call at Singleton's Florida residence to find him covered in blood. Inside his home, they found the body of a woman he had brutally stabbed to death. After it was clear Singleton was not joining the group, Things calmed down between the public and the church, but the internal strife was only beginning. Now by this time, Smith had flipped the lives of his followers completely upside down and has taken complete control over his flock, but now that he had it, he needed to keep it. And one of the most effective things he did to meet that end was implement a web of surveillance of sorts. In a sense, it was sort of like North Korea, where they have a secret police who have informants throughout the community, and those informants report on anything that could be considered a crime. A byproduct of that kind of society, though, is that no one trusts anyone. Well, that's how it was in The Bride of Christ. Smith had turned it into his own totalitarian state where members reported on each other to either Smith or higher-ranking members about everything. And I mean everything, because you never knew what the pastor would deem as sinful, so it was better to err on the side of caution and spill it all. So every step you made was being watched and reported on by your neighbors, your friends, even your spouse. So this made leaving even more difficult than you might think, because if you wanted to leave and express that in secret to someone, if they wanted to stay, they could tell the pastor and he would immediately kick you out and your spouse and children would remain in the church. So you were even afraid to talk about leaving. But it didn't stop there. You didn't only have to worry about getting in trouble for the things you did. You also had to worry about things you didn't do. It's almost like we, he was trying to use us against each other, you know, to rat each other out. You know, like if you see your brother or your sister do something, you know, you're supposed to let him know. It wasn't to set him free. It was to get him in trouble. It, it's like we were supposed to do that, and it was to hold each other accountable, I guess, but he had already made it so nobody trusted anybody. You were afraid to tell anybody anything because you didn't know who'd go tell him. You know, and that was the thing. It was almost like he was starting to pit us against each other so that we were afraid to tell, except to tell him. He wanted us to tell him when something was going on competition was a thing and always looking to get somebody else in trouble and they're not working and I'm better than they are and your kids are bad you know and so as time went on that's how it went well she did this well they did that and then if you could get somebody else in trouble that made you look good and you gained favor from the pastor and so there was a lot of just you know backstabbing because that I mean for you to gain favor it had to be over someone else and and then what happened, too, is he was always getting in the middle of marriages, in a way, so that if the husband husband's in trouble, but the wife's not, and the husband's not going to leave, because the wife's not going to leave, and then, or, or vice versa. So he, he learned how to play people. He was very mean. He was, um, he liked to hurt people. I mean, he would always throw things up in people's faces that 
supposedly they did. And sometimes they didn't do it. You know, I mean, a lot of these things he used to say weren't true. But if you tried to tell him that's not what happened, then you were in big trouble because you came up against something he discerned. He would, he would make up these things and then he would throw it at you. And he was like, or Paul, you're a homosexual or Sean, you're molesting your daughter. And, you know, it was like these things weren't even happening. He did these things. He said these things. And you couldn't say, no, that wasn't what happened. So when we were in church and he accused me of masturbating, and I don't remember why that happened, but he, uh, in front of the whole church, he goes, you've been masturbating, haven't you? This is the pastor telling me, uh, he goes, you've been, you've been masturbating, haven't you? And I said, no, dad. I said, oh, I've been masturbating and I had, but we're all about living holy lives and, I said, no, Dad, I haven't been masturbating. He goes, are you calling me a liar? Because he would do things like that, though. You calling me a liar? I said, no, Dad, I'm not. I'm not calling you a liar. He goes, then you've been masturbating, haven't you? And so I admitted to, like, masturbating in front of everybody. Because, you know, he said he was the prophet. So you just had to confess to something that you never did. That happened a lot to a lot of people but for whatever thing. You call me? No, Dad, I didn't. I did it. You call me a liar? No. Well, did you? Yes. <laughs> you know, and you know you didn't, but I didn't want to get into it with him. Tom decided to tell my parents that I had been sexually rubbing myself up against him, and he felt uncomfortable. So, yeah, so Tom Smith, so then the next day we had church, and he brought me up to the front of the church as a five-year-old and accused me of masturbating and rubbing myself on his leg. Because I told you, he made me sit on his lap all the time and kiss me. So he brought me up in front of the whole church and said, you are feeling sexual thoughts towards me, aren't you? You have been rubbing yourself on me. Um, That's wrong. It's sinful, blah, blah, blah. And I remember standing there as a fucking five-year-old girl going, okay, I don't know what the hell this motherfucker's talking about, but sure. I guess. So I admitted to it. I was like, yes. After that, I think I was on restriction or something, and I couldn't talk to anybody for like a month or something because I was sexually lusting after Tom. But then I remember thinking, because I, I, I was a pretty smart kid, thinking, what is this guy talking about? But at the same time, I was like, well, I guess I better admit to it because you know if, if you don't admit to it, then it's going to drag on longer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I'll just put an end to this. And so I had to stand up in front of everybody and say, I was humping the prophet. Most of the verbal onslaughts were, you know, there was no need for it. I mean, he sometimes you'd get yelled at for something that never even happened. I remember one time, and I used to think this to somebody else I was talking to, and she got accused of something, and, and, which I know she didn't do. And, she, and so we talked about it later. And, she said, I know I didn't do what he said. He said, but maybe there was something that I did, you know, two weeks ago or whatever that, that I didn't, you know, maybe I had a bad thought and I never confessed it. And so what I got today is like punishment for what I may have done two weeks ago. And I had thought that too, you know, I would think, yeah, I just got admonished for whatever, you know, whatever it was at the time. You know, and, and I think, well, maybe I did something in the past that warrants being admonished. And even though I didn't do what he said today, 
maybe I deserved it from, you know, a month ago. Or And that's, that's the kind of stuff you say in your mind just to keep you going, you know, to make you feel like you deserved it at some point. Because if you didn't, all, all you're going to feel is, is just, you know, you're being abused and, you know, you just, you've got to rationalize it in your head. And I think that's what we all did. I know going to church is something many people look forward to, but unfortunately for me, I feel a certain sense of anxiety every time I'm about to walk inside of a religious institution. And I'm sure it's the same for the kids I grew up with, if they've even gone back. And the reason for that anxiety is because of the years and years of bad experiences we all had in the Bride of Christ. To us, the church was a place of dread. We never looked forward to going, ever. And that's because of the things that happened there. It would take too long to go over every instance, but I'll touch on most of the major events in this story. But one of the most common things you experienced during a service were those accusations and the yelling and screaming, humiliation, or worse, that accompanied them. And most of these accusations were done in front of the church gatherings during a thing called testimonies. Giving a testimony was a custom in the Bride of Christ that had been around since its conception, and probably other churches too. But in the early days, it was mainly used as a way for people to tell their story, share their struggles, and ask for help or give accounts of people they had witnessed to. After the move to Oregon, the focus shifted from sharing uplifting news and events, which were called good testimonies, and turned into members confessing their sins, which were called bad testimonies. A member could voluntarily get up during the designated time after the sermon to give their testimony, or be forced to give one if Smith felt they were hiding something. After a good testimony, the pastor would offer some praise and have you sit back down, or he could call you a liar and accuse you of some wrongdoing, and you ended up in trouble anyways. On a few occasions, though, if he thought you were really good, he would have you come up and stand by him and flaunt you to the other members, which seemed more of a way for him to point out how others were falling short rather than praise the individual who had done well. And on rare occasions still, he would anoint you, which was covering your head in oil and giving you a blessing. After a bad testimony, however, the pastor would meet out discipline as he saw fit, or have another member carry it out. For example, if a wife or child sinned, he would order the father to administer discipline, either during the gathering or at home. If a man got in trouble, he would discipline them himself or order another male to do it. If he did not believe a father or mother capable of disciplining their children, or did not think the punishment they received was sufficient, he would order parents from another family to discipline the child. If a child continued to misbehave, he would order that child to be taken from its family and sent to live with another family for a time, or even kick the minor out of the church. But we'll get to that later. Anyhow, the discipline was interesting because it evolved over time. In the beginning, a verbal tirade or getting kicked out was all one had to worry about. But as things went on, it turned more physical. And that's because the pastor himself was a violent man. He had been able to keep that side of him under control while he was attracting members in the early days, but when he felt he had enough power, he let go of all restraint. And as his behavior became more aggressive, so too did his followers and the culture of his church. The men could physically discipline each other, though the punishment that was used most for the adults was something called being put out of the fellowship, which was basically shunning. And during this time, they could not speak to anyone, and no one would speak to them, including their families. They did not eat with others, and were only allowed plain rice for all meals. This was called the rice diet. They slept in a room alone. They sat in church alone, if they were even allowed to attend. And they were given extra work or chores. The average time a person, including children, were out of the fellowship was a couple weeks, though on some occasions, it lasted months. Other forms of discipline were things like having your head shaved, man, woman, or child, being publicly chastised and humiliated, or physical discipline of various forms. And keep in mind there were punishments that were strictly for the children, 
things like standing on the wall, but on occasion the pastor would have adults do it to humiliate them, like one instance where he had an adult male stand on the wall in front of the church during the length of a sermon. And what you got in trouble for, and I mean a lot of trouble, was often the most mundane things. It could be accidentally breaking something, asking for basic items, speaking out of turn, if a farm animal died, the people on the farm were disciplined, and the pastor's reasoning for this was that it could only have happened because someone had sinned, and all of his followers were to live a perfect life. And Smith felt justified in the discipline he meted out, because he believed it was saving his flock from the fires of hell. Well, we were treated good sometimes, and then we did something that offended him. And sometimes you did something that offended him, but you don't know what you did. He would chew you up one side and down the other. I mean, he just... You know, just make you feel like you were real small. Can you cut your hair? You know, you know those things that happen. Sin was sin, and whatever you, we were to be perfect, perfect, no sin whatsoever. And you know, like I said, forgetting to write down the day's tomato weight. You know, not not going to to write it down. Oh, I forgot, and I'll write it down in the morning. No, if you didn't do it that night, um, and then somebody will tell on you. You know, oh look, this isn't here, and. Uh, that's how I got my head shaved, was for that. We used to have a, a place, it was an old fish hatchery where we had our cabinet shop. But anyway, I was there, we was there one Sunday, we was cleaning the vehicles up. And I was backing up from the front of the building to the back of the building, and right around the corner was one of the vehicles. And I was backing up, and I actually backed into it. But he got so mad, he called my wife and told her to divorce me. The things like making people afraid? You know, the threats he did, separating people, taking kids away, taking husbands away, making people shave their heads. Um, the time he was going to kill your dad because he couldn't hook, hook up a water system at his house. I wasn't there that day. But next day, Susan told me about it. And she was laughing when she was telling me about it. She said, I thought she was, she was going to kill him because he couldn't do a job that dad needed him to do. Well, he would, what we used to call shun you, you know, when you... You wouldn't talk to anybody. I don't tell you talk to somebody if it's job related. You know, you wouldn't even eat with them for like six weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have your head shaven. I had my head shaved on how many times. People start getting kicked out of fellowship for stuff. Like Todd, when we lived in we lived in Templeton Valley. There's some people lived in Templeton Valley, and there's a little old, like old, old cemetery, mm-hmm. like maybe with a half a dozen headstones or something. Well, Todd took his kids and showed them the headstones. Got kicked out of fellowship. Six months. You get kicked out of fellowship, nobody talks to you. You're really looked down upon just because of the fact that you're out of fellowship. You eat different foods. For the guys, um, where we lived, you, you went over to the other trailer. And you just ate by yourself. You did all the chores. Even if you're up half the night, that was it. Just nobody talked to you. He didn't say anything to anybody. I hated being out of fellowship. I hated it. It's probably the worst thing I ever went through in my life. I got kicked out for taking you guys swimming. I got kicked out for that. I got kicked out for breaking a laser. I got kicked out for breaking a welder. Sounds like an accident to me. It was an accident, total accident, but it was, um, you, you're, you're in a wrong area. There's something going on with you. Or that wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's how it was. Mm-hmm. There's something there's something inside of you, brother. Because the Lord wouldn't let that happen. I was on a fast. 
because I was just praying. I was just like, Lord, what's going on? You know, why do I always get in trouble? I was honestly asking God, like, why am I always getting in trouble? Because I'm always, you know, meaning to do the right things and trying to do the right things and trying to make the pastor happy and, uh, but just always getting in trouble. And I get home on a Friday night in Thai Valley and Sue gave me some food, but I didn't eat it. And I was out of fellowship, so I wasn't talking either. Couldn't talk to her, but I couldn't talk to my own wife. The, the control that he had over the, the, the congregation, right? Mm-hmm. I remember him telling Paul, um, basically telling Paul that he was gay, telling him, you're gay, aren't you? You like sucking dick, don't you? Beating this guy in the face. I mean, he's an old, you know, Tom's an older guy, but he's like beating him in the face. Paul's just taking it like a little bitch. Yeah, Dad. Yeah, Dad. I I like men. I like sucking dick. Blah blah blah. He's telling. I it might have been Tommy. I don't remember who it was. He's telling another dude that he likes to have sex with animals. He's mm-hmm. telling people this, as he's like in front of the congregation, as he's like verbally and and sometimes physically accosting them. Tom was beating uh, Paul. He kind of punched him and just and and I'm thinking, okay, that's. You know, you should be done now. That's that's enough. You're hurting him. You know, I know in my mind, you know, that's that's enough. And Paul turns around to Tom and Paul said, do it some more. That's not enough. Do it some more. Because Tom's beating the living crap out of him. And Paul turns around and says, do it some more. Do it some more. One time he knocked me on the floor when we were at the, um, you know, Spirit Lake. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah. I don't know how old you were. When Dad turned, I gave him recess because they had missed their recess and Dad happened to pull up. And he came in and wanted to know why Dad were outside playing and not working. And I told him, I said, because I gave him recess now. I said, because they missed it. He knocked me on the ground. He, no. he hit you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Before I got kicked out of the church, my wife and his wife kind of got in some kind of scuffle. And he's told me to, you know, to shake her up. You know, like you, you better shake up your wife. That's when they started getting more little physical. And uh, so I went down, and I was talking to her, my wife, and uh, I said, "Told me, or that I should shake. I need to shake you up." And so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I just like gently shook her, just gently though. Mm-hmm. I said, like, there, see, I'm, I'm shaking you up, but I wasn't. Uh, when I got back to, uh, when we got back up to Portland on a Monday morning, it asked me, he goes, so did you shake up your wife? And I said, I said, no, <laughs> you know, I really I didn't. And he tackled me over this couch, got me on the ground, put it, had his hands on my neck. And he was shaking me big time. He goes, I told you to shake her up. And he was shaking me up. When guys were getting in trouble at that time, the pastor would always, you know, he'd find out somebody got in trouble or did something wrong or did something stupid. And the pastor would be asking, because Steve's assistant pastor, he'd be like, what did you do? What'd you do? And would say this, and the pastor would say stuff like, well, ah. I'd have grabbed him by a scruff of his neck, or I'd have, you know, I'd have slugged him or something. You know, pastors always leading towards physical getting something 
doing something physical. And uh, John and I were driving to Portland, three o'clock in the morning. We're pulling the travel trailer and it just got away from him. And we got in a wreck. And I knew that John was gonna get kicked out of church. Just knew it. I mean, he'd been in trouble for everything. And the whole way I was thinking up there, man, I know he's gonna get kicked out. I just know it. And I love John. I didn't want him to get kicked out. I said, you know what? What can I do? And I thought, you know what? I know exactly what I could do. I could punch him right in the mouth. <laughs> and if I do that, pastor's gonna say, what'd you do? Punched him in the mouth. Okay, that takes care of it. John's dealt with, and he's not gonna get kicked out of church. I just knew it. And so when we got to Portland, <laughs> we got out of the truck. And the pastor always said, if you ever get in a fight with somebody taller than you, you slug him in the gut first, that'll bring him right down eye level, and then you... <laughs> so that's what I did. <laughs> I slugged him in the gut, and he goes, oof! <laughs> and then I wham! <laughs> Knocked him right in the teeth. <laughs> Poor guy. I felt his teeth fold back in his mouth, too. But uh, he took about five or six steps back, fell on his butt, got up, man, he was just... Blood was just pouring out of his mouth. But he got in the truck, and we're sat in there, and he said, thanks, brother, I needed that. <laughs> and then uh, pastor called up and told him what happened. That was it. He didn't get kicked out. He thought he was doing the right thing, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So he punched him in the face. But that's how it was getting. But see, people were, cha were changing. Their I don't think I ever got, you know, I don't think I ever did anything that, I normally wouldn't have done to somebody but yeah I had people pushing me people were doing things and I knew and I knew they normally wouldn't do it that or I knew I, I didn't feel like they wanted to do it but it was getting so tense and nobody wanted to get in trouble and everybody uh, I don't know it just got really weird listening to that reminds me of something George Carlin once said quote you will do things in the name of a group that you would never do on your own. Injuring, hurting, killing, drinking are all part of it. Because you've lost your identity. Because you now owe your allegiance to this thing that's bigger than you are, and that controls you. End quote. Now, while all the punishments were bad, the ultimate penalty a member could face is one you might not consider that bad at all. But it was the one thing every member feared the most, and that was getting kicked out of the church. And getting kicked out is just what it sounds like. It was basically exile where a member was thrown out and expected to leave everything behind on the spot. The process of it was the pastor or someone else told you to go, sometimes forcefully, and 90% of the time it was without warning. So that member dropped what they were doing and started walking, literally. They left their home, their families, and started walking the streets without money or possessions. And one could be kicked out for a certain amount of time, or indefinitely. If it was indefinite, you could be given clothes and sometimes your last check, but this depended on the pastor's mood, he could either throw out a whole family or just an individual. If that individual had a family, their spouse and children would remain in the church. Smith would then divorce the couple and remarry the remaining spouse to whoever he saw fit. And as for being kicked out temporarily, this was a form of torment. Because most of the time, when Smith kicked you out, you didn't know how long you were going to be gone. So you spent every day hoping to be called back, and this could go on for months. Also, he was known to change his mind and tell you not to come back, or vice versa. But even if you were kicked out, there were still rules, 
like you weren't supposed to fellowship with the world or attend other churches, as doing so was to commit something he called spiritual fornication. Yeah, I got kicked out once. What happened? Uh, he, uh, we had a, a pump. We had, we had, we were having trouble with a pump. The pump, what happened is, the pump froze up or it went dry or something, and he wanted me to fix it. And I went over there and fixed it, and the same thing happened again. And he asked me to fix it, so I said, yeah. And then the next day, or a couple of days later, he called me, and he was mad. The pump ain't working. Threw me out. I was gone for three weeks. I went and lived in Spokane, Washington. And when I got to Spokane, I was at a park. There were some other people there. I guess they were homeless too. And I thought, well, you know how people are homeless people. They try to take, you know, they they take control of their territory. I didn't want to go to sleep with somebody beat me up. So I went and I slept in a tree for three nights. It was so cold. I got a garbage bag. I don't know where I got a garbage bag from. And I put the garbage bag over me and I went up in a tree and I slept in a tree for three nights. Well, what was going through your mind though, that those first like three days? Man, I couldn't have sleep. I was tired. I was hungry. I was cold. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Where am I at? This is the first time I had been away from the church in what, 15 years or something like that? And, uh, then I think it was if you if you didn't fellowship with the world, you know, for however long the pastor thinks, you know, you let somebody know where you were so they can get a hold of you and then they can call you back. Well, I I was at work in Portland one day and come up to me and he said, Give me your keys, <laughs> give me your stuff. I said, You're out. I'm like what? <laughs> and whatever I did, it, I got kicked out. Right then and there. Oh, I know why I got kicked out. Because Justin was always getting into trouble. Um, and I had went. I was home the weekend Justin was at a fellowship. And I remembered we were at Benton City. Justin and I went out. We were sitting by the, that big tree out in front of the house. And we were talking about what's going on. And I, I was telling him, I said, man, you just can't be doing this. Because what he was doing was stupid stuff. But, you know. I just told me you can't be doing this stuff because it doesn't just affect you. It affects me. It affects our whole family, you know. And he was really sorry that, you know, what he did. And, you know, we hugged and stuff. And I told him, I said, okay, you can be back in fellowship. And uh, because I was under the impression the dad could put his own kid back in the fellowship. Well, anyways, middle of Portland, <laughs> I was done. I had to leave. So I walked. I don't know, probably about a mile up the street. I had no idea where I was. And uh, I saw this guy, this old guy working on his yard. So I asked him if he needed any help. And he said, yeah. So I helped him work on his yard, did some stuff up on his roof, cleared some moss off his roof. And he paid me for what I did that day. And it was weird having money because I hadn't had money in 15 years. (laughs) So when you get kicked out, the expectation is you you leave your kids and wife, um, your job, everything. You're just out. You're just out. You're just out on your own. Go live your life now. I remember Andy left a note for their mom because they wanted to speak to her. And they contacted my dad about it. Tom contacted my dad and told them that they were dead to their mom. 
Tom told us that we were not allowed to talk to anyone left in the church, that when we left the church, we were considered dead. And that was it. We had these woodworking magazines, and I was making scrolls of my kids' names, like and Seth. Yeah. Uh, not Seth, because the pastor had Seth and called him Tony. And um, so I ended up getting in trouble for those things because they said I wasn't satisfied with what the Lord gave me. And then the next day when uh, Seth comes walking in wearing diapers because he peed the bed and pastor's all mad at me saying I'm spiritually at fault. And that's when he came over and he grabbed me by my hair. I don't know if you remember that, but he, he grabbed my hair and he yanked my head back and forth. And he got, he was violent with me. I mean, had his, my hair was in his hand and he was shaking my head back and forth. And my daughter was sitting right next to me. And that's, then he said, that's when he said, get him out of here. And everybody in the whole church stood up. When I had to walk out that door. And, no, and nobody said anything? No. No. They stood up and made sure I walked out that door. So I was just like walking across the street. Like, wow, I was like thinking this really, is this really happening? And, and I mean, I remember sleeping on a park bench. I remember sleeping in cardboard boxes. I remember sleeping in somebody's boat. I ended up meeting this other, I ended up meeting this homeless guy and he invited me to his church. Um, and when people started coming in, I ended up just leaving. I didn't feel comfortable there. But then later on, that one came back to bite me. Um, one, one of the times when I called in, actually I talked to the pastor and he, and one of the questions he asked me was, you haven't been going to any of the churches, have you? And I said, well, I said, I did go to one. Well, he said, ended up, I found out later that he said I committed spiritual fornication by going to that other church. But that's how, that's how he justified my wife divorcing me. Because I went to another church, I committed spiritual fornication. And fornication, I guess, was his grounds for divorce. Once, once I found out Sue actually did divorce me and she married Paul and that's, and then that's when I was like, I can't believe this just happened, you know? And, and to me, it was like, I remember laying on that, on the ground in Dye Valley, looking up the sky and I was just praying to God to help me. And like, what am I doing wrong? How come I'm always in trouble? You know, and I was seriously just praying, God, please just help me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but if that was the answered prayer, uh, that's how God helped me. <laughs> I got kicked out because I wouldn't have never left. Now, the stress of being kicked out didn't only affect the person leaving, but their families too. Not only did they believe that their father or mother had just been damned to hell and that they might never see them again, but they also had to worry about what was going to happen to them now because the parent that remained in the church would have to remarry and the new husband or wife coming into the family could be significantly worse than your biological parent. Sometimes it wasn't so bad, though, as there were some good-hearted people in the church, especially in the early days, and it was an adjustment, but you could learn to live with things. But then on the other hand, let's just listen to what it could be like from two different girls whose mothers were forced to remarry after their fathers were kicked out of the church. When my father left, so I, I was six when my father left, 
I guess my my mother said that that uh, my dad and her talked, and he said, "I'm leaving. I want you to come with me. I want you and the kids to come with me." And she said, "No, we're not going. We're going to stay here." And so he left. And he, I, I, we didn't know that he had left. My mom just came uh, to the sixplex and told us he was gone. Um, after that, they had her marry Bruce. It, this was very soon after. I mean, maybe a week. There was. A courtship period, what they called. Um, so at that point, Bruce came in. He was going to be our new dad. They said, your, your old dad's gone. Here's your new dad. And he was, he lived with us for a couple of weeks and was very friendly and was very nice to us. Uh, and at that point, we were excited about it as children would be. This is your new dad. Yay, I guess. And then uh, after the courtship, it was, which was a couple weeks, I think, they got married. And Bruce, is, we had to take Bruce's last name, basically. They said, your father is not your father anymore. This is your new father. And you cannot use the name ever again. You have to use the name. This is your father now. Your old father doesn't exist anymore. And if we use the name, we would get our asses beat. And so from that from that day forward, I was Jesse, and there was we couldn't even mention our father. We couldn't mention his name. We couldn't mention our life before at all. Um, and he moved in with us after a couple of weeks of courtship, and we were excited. I remember there was there was some sort of little makeshift wedding, whatever. And then uh, we all went home, and the horror began. He turned into a monster, a complete monster. He beat my mom. I heard her screaming and crying all night long. He beat us. It was horrible. It was the dark days of my life. It was a couple weeks. He was nice. We were happy. We were excited. We got a new dad. And then the second he moved in, the, the hammer smashed down. And we were secluded out in the woods with Bruce for years. You know, and that's that's all I, I, I really can can remember of that terror that motherfucker was a horrible person um he wanted me to be his daughter okay he said that you're my daughter now and he purposely he specifically uh separated time for us to be alone together and stuff but i knew he wasn't my dad and i tried you know i i really tried because i knew he was gonna kick my ass if i didn't but it just, it wasn't right. This guy was just a bad fucking guy. He was a bad guy. And I just, I, every time I tried to, to love him, he wanted us to love him. He wanted us to love him. He would make us hold his hand. He would make us sit on his lap. He would make us call him dad over and over. But I just, he could look in my eyes and he could tell that I knew he wasn't my dad and he would beat the shit out of me every day because of it. Paul raped my mom in front of us multiple times. I remember when our bunk beds collapsed on us and Paul had told my sister to leave us under there that it's what God wanted. And I remember my mom came and got us out and did all this shit and he drugged my mom through that house by her hair and raped her. And I remember me and I standing in the doorway screaming at him and he went he told Tom that Sean's kids were of the devil and that we needed to have Jesus beat into us and learn how to act because we wouldn't call him father, that we were trying to prevent him 
from having godly acts with his wife. I mean, it was, there wasn't a night he didn't do something terrible to her. And I would go in there while my mom would beg and plead for him to not touch her, to not do this. Please don't do this to me. Please stop. You're hurting me. And he and I would go in there and we'd hit him with spoons and paddles and stuff until he'd get up and just beat the shit out of us and leave her alone. Well, I, I told my dad, I said, you know, this piece of shit raped my mom every single night that you were gone. I said, do you understand the shit he put and I through? And he said, wait, what? And my dad didn't know about any of this stuff when Paul showed up at his house in 2008. He showed up claiming my mom had a daughter by him and he wanted to see her. And I lost it. Like, lost it, lost it. And he was like, I can't believe how much you've grown up and how beautiful you are. And you look so much like your mom did. And it was the first time as a grown adult I had a full-blown panic attack. And he was like, I, and Paul goes, that, that was just your imagination. That never happened. And I said, I've never forgot it. But I told him then, I said, you fucked up my entire life. I said, I've never been able to forget this shit. I can't sleep because I could hear it. At this point, people may be wondering, why wait to get kicked out? Why not leave? To try and understand this, you have to look at it from many different points of view. First, they did not see Smith as the cause of their suffering, only as an instrument. Instead, they believed their own sin was to blame, and that they deserved whatever happened. Secondly, they truly believed the only way to heaven was by following their prophet, and anyone who left his flock forfeited their place in heaven and jumped on a one-way train to hell. And not only that, but their kids were going to hell with them. And the main reason why I believe that they believed what the pastor told them is because they were willing to give up everything to follow him, even their children. Multiple mothers, even Smith's younger wife, allowed their children to leave the church while they stayed there, which is something she admitted to struggling with for years. One member told me of a time when Smith's wife visited her house and saw pictures of the woman's children hanging on her wall that she had given up custody to. And she asked her, how can you look at that? How can you look at those pictures every day and not have your heart broken? because she herself couldn't handle seeing pictures of her own children that she had given up. And it wasn't like you could call them on the weekends or write letters back and forth. You did not hear from them. You did not talk to them. You did not see them. For years. And most of the kids they gave up custody to were young, between 5 and 10 years old. And it wasn't that the parents didn't care about the kids they gave up. You know, they drove me crazy anyway, good riddance. They loved them. But Smith convinced them that if they let their children go, but they stayed with him in the church, they were saving the souls of their children from hell. And I haven't touched on this much, but everyone in the Bride of Christ Church was absolutely terrified of hell. I myself can't tell you how many Dante's Inferno-esque nightmares I've had over the years. But Smith used the fear of hell as a way to keep control. But more so than that, he used fear itself as a tool to shape his followers in the first place. Because when people are afraid, they're malleable. So he kept them believing the end of the world was always right around the corner, members feared every day could be their last, this kept them short-sighted, focused on one day at a time, instead of thinking about the future. One tool he used to that end was media and movies. He would gather everyone at church on occasions to watch movies like Deep Impact or news stories and videos that supported his rhetoric. Another reason people stayed was because they had nothing. They were completely dependent on the church. They cut off contact with their families and friends, and this communal lifestyle where they gave all their wealth and belongings to the church and had no access to money, hamstring their independence. But keep in mind the church wasn't poor or struggling to get by. In fact, the construction company was so successful they closed the cabinet shop and sent all the men to work there, and the church pocketed all the money. 
because at first, the men weren't paid at all for their work, but due to an intervention by the Department of Labor, checks were eventually issued to them. But those were then immediately signed back over to the church, per the original agreement. Meanwhile, the women continued to be unpaid for their work. So after a few years, the church was bringing in enough money to bring about the utopia Smith promised. Starting in the late 80s, they had enough to buy multiple properties across the span of four states, dozens of vehicles, farm equipment, expensive boats, and a host of other things. But he purposefully kept his followers living meagerly, giving them only the bare minimum of what they needed to get by. And the wild thing is, they knew about it. Man, I found out by accident one day that we were millionaires. We were 12 guys on the construction crew were millionaires. 12 guys. We were doing Fred Meyers, um, Safeways, Albertsons, building custom homes. Man, we I'm telling you, we were good at what we did. And we were fast. And we did it over and over and over. And I was down at the shop one day because Dick, he's the accountant. And he was just talking about the books one day. And he said, yeah, you guys topped a million this year. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And we're still working two weeks on and a weekend off. I mean, I know the guys some years made a million dollars, you know, and he was pretty chintzy with our clothing supply and things like that. So I'm sure he didn't spend it all on us. It was like, why should we even put into retirement? Why do any of that? Jesus is going to be here. We're not. And he literally said this. We are not going to live till retirement. Why put into all of that? But for a while, it worked well when it was all the utopia. But then the human elements set in. You know, we were there for years and years and years. And the human element of greed set in on his part because they made an astounding amount of money. Because we were making so much money at the time that we could afford to go buy anything we wanted anywhere and move everybody, cost of all the moving expenses. And I think he was just spending the money. That's why he bought so many boats. And towards the very end, he had so many cars out front that some of them were never driven. One of the big things that people would say was, oh, the church never paid taxes. That's not true. Well, the church didn't pay taxes because they didn't have to. They were nonprofit. And so does every other church in the United States. So there's, you know, but as one person talks, it goes to another person and another person. It just gets all inflated. And, but no, the church paid all the taxes. And I'm sorry, the corporation, you know, paid everything that was that was due. We had it together as far as work and finances. And he said, when we when we got everything paid off, you guys would be living back at home with your wives and your families. And we had everything paid off and then some. But nope, that never happened. Why? You know? I mean, it's that's we were we were so financially successful in that church. We could have done the things that he said we were supposed to do, like, you know, live with our own families instead of living with the guys up in Portland and then going home every other weekend. We could have lived in our own homes and traveled back and forth to work. We could have done a lot of things that he said we were gonna do once we got the you know, once we got established and, you know, got the construction company going and we, you know, we're bringing in enough money, man, we brought in buck olas and all we ever did was continue to work. Now, the Bride of Christ continued to live in relative secrecy from 1989 to 1999. They mostly went unnoticed by the public, but law enforcement and local authorities took notice of any place they settled. One member recalled police picking her up while she was walking down the road after being kicked out. 
She said they interrogated her about the church and its inner workings, but since she planned on going back, she didn't tell them anything. The church did appear once in a local newspaper in 1993 upon moving to the Dalles, Oregon. The Dalles isn't far from the town Antelope where the famous Rajneeshi cult had their compound just a few years prior, so of course the locals were concerned about another cult moving into the area. The paper made a note of the church's odd practices and interviewed a member who explained that they came in peace and that crime was not their agenda. And besides giving passerbys something to stare at when they saw women and children with shaved heads or coverings working the fields, the church kept a pretty low profile. Something that helped the Bride of Christ fly under the radar was that since 1984, they did not recruit any new members to the church. In fact, anyone that came off the street into the church building during a service was intercepted by the men. They would question the person about their life and beliefs, these conversations would turn into arguments, and the visitor would leave. I recall one such visitor in the mid-90s saying as he was surrounded by male members, you guys are not the Bride of Christ Church, you guys are out of your mind, as he walked out of the door. There was only one exception in 1987. A man saw the incident with Lawrence Singleton on the news and heard the name Azalea. Allegedly, he had a dream in which he was being called somewhere and saw a flower, in Azalea to be precise. So when he saw the church on TV in the town of Azalea, he knew that this was what his dream meant. Whether that was true or not, the reality was, like Smith, the man was a sex offender and saw this as a safe haven, as the pastor was publicly welcoming a convicted rapist into his flock. This man would become Smith's golden boy and one of his most sadistic followers. He was the last person to ever join the church. Anyhow, the church also moved frequently. Its members could be uprooted every few months and move either between properties in the area, to other towns, or other states at a moment's notice. Though the majority of their properties were in different parts of Oregon, they had farms in remote parts of Washington and Idaho as well. Now it might seem like we focused a lot on the move to Oregon and somewhat skimmed over their time spent in other states, but that's because we're focusing on what it was like to be in the church in the big picture events. If you get an idea of what daily life was like for members, you can pretty much rinse and repeat their experiences no matter where they lived. But what properties members lived on was determined by a family's size and standing with the pastor. For instance, a larger family that was out of favor, like mine that had nine children, would be placed on the farms to work, while families in good standing mostly lived in less isolated areas and had other tasks such as maintaining the church building, teaching, taking care of groceries and supplies, managing the taxes, or working as the pastor's assistant. Though anyone could be moved around as the pastor saw fit, and no matter the location of a family, all members were required to attend services at the church headquarters on Saturdays and Sundays. As far as working the farms, it was not only the men and women that did physical labor, but the children and teens too. From as early as they were able, children would work in some capacity. While the workload for a young child was scaled to their ability, it quickly escalated as they got older. A normal workday for a minor, anyone from 7 to 17, was working in the field from before sunrise till after sunset, then doing more work inside in the evening, along with facing punishments for whatever you did or didn't do during the day. And everything but cutting and baling hay was done by hand, and no matter the weather conditions, members worked. It could be below 10 or 110. It didn't matter. And heat stroke or working while you were very sick was not uncommon. But weather conditions weren't the only hurdle one had to deal with, since food restriction was a form of discipline. Members often labored on empty stomachs, kids included. And when I say kids, I mean between ages 5 and 16, perhaps one or two 17-year-olds, but most that worked were younger. Some kids, after being on a rice diet for weeks, would steal food from the garden while they worked. This helped with the hunger, but if they got caught, it was hardly worth it. Kids were also judged for the quote-unquote fruits of their work, and I mean really everyone was. A common phrase among members was, buy the fruit. 
coming from the verse in the Bible, by their fruits ye shall know them. But for instance, one 13-year-old, knowing he would get in trouble for a smaller than normal yield of milk from the cows, added water to the pails. When the adults found out, he was beaten, had his head shaved, and put out of the fellowship. To be fair, he would have gotten in less trouble if he hadn't added water, but you get the idea. Everything was punishable, even things you had no control over. If you're listening to this and you think, that sounds an awful lot like abuse, you would be correct. If you've been paying attention so far, you could probably see that coming. Look at how the pastor treats everyone, how the adults treat each other. You can assume the children are going to get their fair share. So, of course, abuse was rampant in the church, and it came in many forms. There were beatings, from mild to severe, either by hand or with objects such as belts, sticks, boards, hammer handles, cords, paddles, tree branches, or whatever else was lying around. Standing on the wall for hours, sometimes overnight, and this means you stand straight up with your toes and nose touching the wall. Cold showers, hot Epsom salt baths after being beat bloody, being locked in closets, liquid soap poured in a mouth, often leaving one choking, unable to breathe, physical exercise to the point of exhaustion, being put outside in the cold, sleep deprivation, being put out of the fellowship, that form of shunning where you go weeks or months without talking to anyone, verbal abuse, meal restriction, or being fed things like dog food and having to eat it out of a dog bowl. And this one was by far the worst. The humiliation. And I've tried to be at least somewhat objective over the course of explaining the church, but this is where I find I have the most difficulty emotionally disengaging. Not from the physical stuff. That was unpleasant at the time, sure. But it was manageable. It was the humiliation. To paint a picture for you, imagine yourself, let's say eight years old, for the specific example I'm thinking of. You're in church on Sunday. The sermon's over. People are giving testimonies. Then suddenly the pastor turns to you and tells you to stand up. And he asks if you've been having homosexual thoughts. Now that question alone will make you feel pretty uncomfortable, but that's not the bad part. In this case, you tell him no, and instead of accepting your answer, he starts screaming at you, calling you a liar, saying you've been masturbating to men, you have a sick mind, you don't belong in the house of God, you disgust him. I mean, it goes on and on. His face is turning red, and meanwhile, everyone is watching you, some faces mirroring his disgust. He makes you come up in front of the church and admit to masturbating and thinking about men while doing it. No one sticks up for you, not the kids, the adults, not your parents. Everyone just watches, because if they say anything, they're next. And if you stick up for yourself, you're in for some of that physical discipline we mentioned earlier. If that happens once, it sucks. If it happens enough, it takes your mind to some pretty dark places and sticks with you for years to come. And I can't pretend to be better than anyone else, because I did my fair share of sitting in the crowd and silently watching too. Glad I wasn't the one in the spotlight. This time. Another thing to think about is the lasting effects, especially for a young kid, of being put out of the fellowship. At the time, this was our preferred method of discipline. The adults would ask us sometimes, what do you think your punishment should be? And we always said, you know, seeming as hesitant as possible, I think I deserve to be put out of the fellowship. But looking back, I don't think it was healthy for someone that young to go weeks or months without speaking to anyone. And if you find yourself thinking some of this story sounds crazy and wonder if I'm adding stuff for dramatic effect, those listening to this who were there, know that if anything, I'm leaving things out. Now, some families did experience less abuse than others, as not all the adults were as prone to violence, but most kids experienced a significant amount of verbal, physical, and psychological abuse, and some endured even worse. I can talk about this for a little while, but this one is incredibly hard for me. So so just realize that. This one is incredibly difficult. So, um... The kids were just like the women were. They were, except even lower. See, in the church, kids weren't cherished. 
they weren't nurtured, they weren't cherished, they were labor, you know, and they were expected to get out and work as soon as they could get out and work. If I didn't get my chores done on time, and I'm talking like one minute late, and this was consistent, right? Even when we moved to Ben City, I didn't get to eat, so I didn't get to eat a whole lot. I missed a lot of meals, man. You know, work started between 4 and 6 a.m. Pipes were moved at 6 a.m. And we didn't come in till 10 o'clock at night. We weren't done till 10, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you came in and, you know, did stuff. <laughs> and so it was just straight to bed. And um, and there was no playing. The kids never had time to play and be kids. Never. Toys weren't bought for them. I mean, the only toys you had were what you made out of whatever materials you could find. You know, you could make some blocks. Maybe you found some some marbles in the dirt somewhere. But kids weren't given books to read. They weren't given toys to play with. There wasn't playtime. There wasn't let's go for a walk. It was there's chores to do. You do your schoolwork. You eat. You do your chores outside. You do your chores inside. You're treated like a dog. You have everything spick and span. And then you go to bed and you get up again and you better not complain or be unhappy. And by the way, if you're out working, by God, if you're not slaving away, I remember it being 120 degrees. And I came in and said, Mom, it is hot. She said, Son, I can't let you come inside. If I let you come inside, I'll get in trouble. But she said, Son, go in the backfield and and get in the trough. She's like, just, just get wet. I'll make sure nobody comes out. So... You know, she wanted to, to look out for me, but she was scared, you know. Anyways, it was shit like that, right? Like, I'm out working. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of an acre garden by myself in 110, 120-degree heat. I've got the neighbor guy coming out saying, do you, do you need some water? Do you need to go in? Like, are you okay? Because it was so fucking hot outside. Kind words were never said to our kids. Never. It was always harsh, and it was always condemning, and it was always, you could do better, you should have done this better. It was it was very rarely, hey, great job. It was just always hateful. And punishment was harsh and fast and unforgiving, and there was no gray. And it was always the harshest measure of punishment for the smallest infraction. And if you didn't, you were going straight to hell and sending your children to hell. And if you couldn't do it harsh enough, they would take your children from you and have somebody else discipline them and raise them because you were not strict enough on So beating was the was was par for the course. If you did something wrong, it was beatings, right? Um and when I say beatings, man, I mean like Nowadays, if I caught somebody beating a kid like that, I would all but kill him, right? And and that was just a spanking. That was a spanking, right? Your your bruises, well, I mean, welts were okay. I'm talking like bruises, bleeding. I mean, to the point where you're getting beat so bad, you know, I would break off a piece of glass. I remember specifically breaking off a piece of glass off of a magnifying glass and cutting myself because the comment was, "If there's not, I'm going to beat you till you till there's blood." So I was like, well, I better fucking get this, get this fucking show started early. Well, you heard about the, the competition with the paddles, right? You remember the competition with the paddles where every family decided to, uh, they decided to form their own paddle. And, and one of the guys came, they got some wood together and they uh, drilled, a, they were trying to see who could, 
design the best paddle to commit the most pain, basically, upon the children. I remember we would uh, on the farm. We would go and we would harvest vegetables, and we would and we would talk about the abuse, and they would say what happened to them the night before, and it was fucking horrible. Um, I I heard about uh, the where they would uh, they got some extension cords uh, and used them on their children, and then oh my god, I can't really even say this out loud, but they would use extension cords and then dunk their child in warm water to make it sting more. Um, This is why I don't have really any uh, connection or communication with anybody, to be honest with you, that was uh, involved in what happened. Like, they treated you like you're a piece of shit. And they'd always telling you how horrible you were. And and, and making it seem like we want we want to trust you, we want to do these things for you, but you just don't let us. You make us do these things. I remember them, like, pouring soap in Matt's mouth, and, like, I think it was and they were, like, had him by his throat, like, pouring Don down his, in his mouth and, like, smacking him in the face. And, I mean, how old was Matt? He couldn't have been, you know, more than five. And it was always physical. You're going to get a beating. <laughs> and it was never enough. If you spanked him, it was never enough. It was never hard enough. It was never, it was vicious and it should never be downplayed. And if it wasn't, again, you were spoiling them. You were being a bad parent. You were going to send them to hell because you're letting them get away from things. And no, there were beatings, constant beatings and viciousness. Uh, so Jimmy, uh, he lives on the streets of Las Vegas now as a drug addict. In, in the little farmhouse school, the teachers uh, would grab him by the hair and bash his head into the wall several times. There was a lot of that going on when people didn't behave uh, at school. Um, but I remember uh, us as children, him being very severely abused in front of all of us. And he was constantly, constantly being beaten, being uh, thrown around, like I said, grabbed by his hair, smashed his head into the wall multiple times on a daily basis pretty much. The only thing I remember of him was his head being smashed into the wall every day. And people like were, they make kids stand on their head for, I mean, they literally tortured them. They would make them stand on their head for hours. If they didn't eat their food, they'd stick their face in the toilet. And the more vicious you could be, the more praised you were. You were a more godly parent, the more demeanor you were. You know, I remember, and I and I hate to to, to throw Dad under the bus like this. Um, Dad had like a blind; he blindly followed, right? And I remember just the feeling like he cared more about like what the pastor said than than our our well being. So I remember one time him throwing me over the fence, and um, I almost fell in the water. And you know, I didn't know how to swim. And then I remember, you know, obviously being terrified, coming back. And then he like filled my mouth with soap and I was like choking and they basically were just, I mean, I was like choking. I couldn't breathe. So, you know, I'm, all, I'm panicking, obviously having an anxiety attack and him and Bruce were just standing there. And I remember at the, you know, when I was all done and I was fine, uh, you know, he basically said, you know, if, if you choked and died, like that's, that's what God, you know, that's what was meant to happen. And I just remember like feeling this disconnect, right? Um, he didn't start that way at all, man. Dad was one of the tamest. I remember being more afraid of mom than dad. Like mom would beat us and then dad would do, dad would do, dad had this thing where he'd make you go get a switch and he hit you three times. 
once for what he did, once to remember, and once for whatever else it was. I don't remember. That was it. Yeah, he got pretty. He got pretty severe towards the end, and I, I think it had to do with. Mom said that if if they didn't beat us enough, they would get in trouble. There was no room for kids to have emotions. I mean, adults barely know how to process. Kids were never given the space to process emotions, to learn how to process emotions, to have emotions. Emotions were sin. It was literally counted as sin to have emotions. I know Joanna was petting a dog, and Tom made her get up in front of the church and say she was sexually abusing it. All she was doing was petting the dog because she was so freaking lonely and so horribly abused. I remember him telling the, the adults that the way God wanted them to punish the kids or to, to discipline the children was to slap them in the face. And so he literally had all the men go smack their children's and the, their kids in the face. Like, that's how they did it. And that's how they were disciplined for a long time until, and I don't remember what made it stop, but that was the discipline. Was And he made, and he made everybody do it to make sure he, you know, it, it met his approval. When I started realizing that it was that that the way Tom operated was not okay was when I had peed the bed. I think I was eleven or twelve. Twelve, I think. I think I just turned twelve. And as you know, you know about child abuse. Like incontinence is is a pretty big sign of child abuse mm-hmm. um, or trauma, right? So I I went to bed. I was actually really sick, and Tom had instructed to. Uh, I think they shaved my head and then I had to walk down the main sidewalk in the Tri-Cities in a diaper. Now, keep in mind, I'm 12, so I had to wear basically a sheet. And that's what I had to wear into the church. So you can imagine the humiliation as you're standing there in front of walking down the sidewalk, then walking in the church, and, and now you're in front of like the congregation, you know, in a diaper. I just thought I was a really bad kid. I just, uh, yeah. But it was bad. Mm-hmm. I, I did not, I couldn't help, I didn't know how to stop being a bad kid. Because, I mean, it's not like I liked getting beat. I didn't like what was happening to me. And then, like I said, at one point, I just stopped caring if I was bad. Um, I was I was always praying for God to make me a better kid, to, to help me think clearly. And, and I was, I remember some serious prayers that I would have with God to make me a better person. Um, better kid, you know better for my parents because I was always getting them in trouble and uh, yeah, it just didn't happen. I look back now and see the horrible things that back then were normal and it to this day gives me such horrible, horrible guilt that I can never do enough to be a good enough mom for the horrible things that you guys went through with yeah, and in my hand, or if not in my hand, then I was too big of a coward and I allowed. Because I was so stupid, I believed you were going to hell if I didn't. It's important to note that for some kids, not a day went by that they weren't humiliated, or verbally or physically abused. Some would go the majority of their childhood without hearing a kind word, and while some of the adults have apologized and attempted to make amends for what happened in the church, more than a few don't think they did anything wrong. Now, play was also rarely allowed for kids in the church, but it was forbidden for those on the farms, where there was work to be done. If a kid was caught playing, they would be disciplined as playing was seen as lazy or shirking duty. However, 
The risks didn't really stop us from finding ways to entertain ourselves. We just did it despite the danger of repercussions. And if you got caught, the attitude was, well, you win some, you lose some. But the aspect of trying not to get caught was part of the fun, and the counterintelligence systems we had in place were just as entertaining. We made a bird signal if the adults were coming. If there was no escape, we would leave one man out to get caught to buy the other's time. We only did certain activities in the open fields when there was fog, so we couldn't be seen from the houses. We ran through empty irrigation canals to conceal our movement. We had tools hidden by doors so we could pick locks and hide in buildings if need be. All kinds of stuff. And there was a code of conduct too. If you got caught, you didn't rat anyone out. And if you did, you were automatically made the next one to take the fall when a sacrificial lamb was needed. Also, before we did anything risky, we all mutually agreed on a cover story in case we were questioned separately. By the way, the games we played were borderline medieval. We made slingshots with rubber bands and tree branches and shot each other with rocks all day. We made guns that shot screws and played a high stakes game of laser tag, which you could count up how many places you were bleeding from to see who won. We would go into the fields with bulls and irritate them into chasing us and try to make it through the fence before they got us. Things like that. That of course was in between a grueling workload and constant punishments, but I at least wanted to touch on it because it wouldn't be honest to say we never found ways to have fun. Keep in mind though, not all kids were as desensitized to the rules as the ones that worked the farms. So you had to be careful when other kids came to the farms until they were familiar with the code of conduct, or else they would rat you out. It was a church's culture after all to report on others, so it was a necessity to know what kids you could trust, which was a trial and error process with every new family you shared a home with. And who shared homes with who, like everything else, was dictated by the pastor. He would move families as a punishment or reward, just like he did with what roles members served in the church. One day you could be in charge of shopping, the next you were in trouble and got sent to the farms to work. Or if he believed one family was being a bad influence on another, he would move a stricter family into the home with the troublemakers to whip them into shape. Or he could just simply take the kid or kids he believed were the problem and send them to live with someone else. And sometimes it wasn't something the kid did at all. Smith was just sending them away to punish the parent. But that's another aspect the kids had to deal with in the church. The fear of being taken from their families always loomed. We mentioned before that if the pastor believed a parent wasn't appropriately disciplining their children, he would have them sent to another family to act as a warden and meet out punishment. Well, the kids were afraid of that happening for a reason, because you were guaranteed harsher discipline than you were already getting. And in one instance, where other families were unable to correct the behavior of a nine-year-old, the pastor actually tried to give him away to the public. See, with me, he would take Kyle from me. That was my punishment. You know, and to me, I've always called child, Kyle the child of my heart. And um, I know it crushed Kyle when I left because he got in a lot of trouble from Tom just for calling me mom. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell him about your mom and dad until, remember when we were up in, um, you were at dad and mom's house and Kyle and I were up there in Washington when I had to bring you back home. Mm-hmm. He was four years old. He made me tell him that we were his biological parents. What? Why did he make you tell him then? Because he wanted me to. I think he wanted to hurt Kyle, and I think he wanted to hurt me. So I did. And my children kept being taken from me because I wasn't strict enough. And they wouldn't let me have Justin for years. They took him away from me for years. And so, um, and I really wasn't even allowed, even in the same house, I wasn't even allowed to talk to him. Bruce and were taking care of him. He was taken from me. And I was forbade to talk to him or take care of him. They would, that was probably the most abuse I'd ever experienced. Um, you're away from home. So you're away from your parents. They're hundreds, hundreds of miles away. They're all the way across the state. 
And I, I, I was sequestered away from the other children. I didn't get to eat what they ate. I didn't get to eat at the table with them. I wasn't allowed to talk to them. Um, so I ate beans and rice for my meals. If it wasn't it was Bruce, because Bruce only came home on the weekends. Come in at, in, in, at like 2 in the morning and like kick me awake. Like literally, I, I'm sleeping on the floor with nothing but blanket. She'd come in, kick me, have me just go stand on the wall. Like, like kick me in the chest, wherever she kicked me, she'd just kick me awake. And I'm not talking like a nudge. I'm talking like kick me awake and be like, and you, you, do you remember her snarly, nasty face? Yeah. She'd be like, stand on the wall, you know, because her job was to make me better, I guess. I don't know. So she'd come in and kick me awake, and she'd do that. Like, you know, and, and I, now, now knowing what I know, I wonder if she did it intentionally, meaning like, because in the Army, they, they use, you know, sleep deprivation as a way to break you down. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they put, build you up how they want to. So maybe that's what she was doing. I don't know. Um, but I'd have to go stand on the wall and then she'd come kick me awake in the morning and, or, or throw water in my face. And if I didn't get up fast enough, she's kicking me to get up. Um, and I remember a couple of times, man, those, that, that foot hit my face, uh, or in my head or whatever. And, and I'd have to go down and clean the chicken coop at four in the morning. I don't know why that needed to be done at four in the morning. Um, and then by God, if I was caught doing anything but working a hundred percent of the time, you know, it was more being standing on the wall for hours and hours going without meals. I remember one time I didn't clean the dog bowl. So I had to sleep outside. I was sick and I had to sleep. You, I don't know if you remember the, the Templeton Valley house, but there was like a basement type thing. And I had to sleep down there with the dogs. Um, just, just crazy shit, man. Like I, so here's one of the more extreme, right? So there's two extreme parts coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, I think I was 12. Yeah, I think I was 12. So I, she had me cleaning the windows out in the barn. You remember that barn was old, single pane windows. Yeah. I'm out there, and I don't know if you know, like, you know how single pane windows, old single pane windows, they have that, like, cloudy film on them? Yeah. And so, I, you know, I'm young. I didn't fucking know that that's, you weren't going to clean that off. And I'm, like, pressing hard to clean it off, right? And I, and I remember breaking it, and I went in, pulled that I broke the window and you remember how if you broke something in the church it was like uh, unleash the the hounds of hell yeah <laughs> you know so she comes out she looks at it she's like you little lying punk like you weren't you were cleaning this you were playing weren't you you did this and she's like screaming at me pushing me around grabbing me by the throat fucking slapped me in the face and I'm just like whatever and finally she gets me to admit that I was playing and not cleaning even though I was cleaning so she there <clears throat> there just happens to be a, a, a hammer handle on the, the bench in the barn and she's like you want to break things and she puts my fucking hands on the on the counter and she just starts smashing my fingers and like dude I had like if it didn't break my fingers it definitely just like fucked them up I mean to this day they're still pretty gnarly um fingernails coming off like i had several fingernails come off my hands were just like fucked up um and and that was it you know i still had to go work and carry a wheelbarrow so it was it was that was probably one of the most extreme uh experiences it was was pretty gnarly so i just remember being in a lot of pain and you know they'd come in and kick me and then bruce would come in and his thing was and i don't know why he'd do this um when he'd come home, you know, on the weekends. He always had a reason to do it. I don't fucking know. But he would punch me in the chest. And Bruce was a big dude. Bruce is probably bigger than me now, and I'm not small. And he would just fucking 
punch, I mean, like, lay into me, man. Um, and, and he would punch me so much that I remember at one point, my, like, I would touch my, my sternum, and it would, it would move in and out. And I mean, that's not supposed to happen to your sternum, right? Like, I remember it would be, like, hard to breathe, like, I'd lay down, it would hurt, and, he, and that's just the kind of shit he would do, right? Mm-hmm. And then just, like, fucking haul off and slap you as hard as he could in the face. Kind of shit he did. So, I mean, they were brutal, man. Like, I don't understand, man. I just remember being told that I would be out of fellowship till Jesus came back because I was incorrigible and I didn't live with my parents, you know, for the last two years. I came back right when I was 14, right when I was turning 14. And I was out of fellowship 90% of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Dad would sometimes come talk to me. Um, if we ever got caught talking to anybody or each other, beatings, you know, um, oh yeah. So now take this with a grain of salt, man, because you got to realize it could, I could have been misunderstanding. I, it could have been anything, but you have to fact check it with mom. But I want to, I, I swear, I remember that Joanna and I were put in an, an ad and they put us in the paper, like up for adoption or whatever the fuck it was they did. And they had to take it out because somebody reported them. They actually put an ad in the paper. Incorrigible boy. Anybody who wants him, come and get him. They put an ad in the paper that he was incorrigible at nine years old and were told to come get him. And now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure somebody called the police on them. They got reported for having, they said, well, it turns out that it's illegal to put an ad in the paper to give your kid away. So I guess we'll have to keep him. Now, what I've tried to do with this whole story is give you a glimpse into the life of the church members to give you an idea of what they were thinking and how they felt during this time. But what the kids experienced was obviously different from what the adults experienced, if for no other reason than that the kids didn't choose to be there. And that made everything going on substantially worse. To put yourself in their shoes... Try to imagine growing up in the Bride of Christ's environment. You could be taken from your family at any given time, worked like a dog, beat consistently, deprived of food, treated like you were worthless, and if you complained or stepped out of line, you were punished more. You dreaded going to church because every time you stepped through the doors, you knew something bad was going to happen. You were either going to see someone get verbally or physically abused, or you were going to be verbally or physically abused. And on top of everything else, you were force-fed that the things happening to you were divinely endorsed. After all, this was coming straight from a prophet of God, so everything that happened, you deserved. If things aren't pleasant enough already, well, it gets worse. Because the kids didn't just have to worry about being taken away as punishment, they had to worry about being given away too. There was another custom in the church, one that started in the mid-80s, when Smith attempted to legally adopt a child, but was prohibited due to his crime. After being rejected by the state, he turned to his flock, asking them to pray for God to provide a way for him and his wife to have a child. Soon after the pastor made that announcement, a couple that was about to have a baby felt it was within their power to answer the prayer, so he and his wife promised Smith the child. After that, it became commonplace for couples to offer their newborns to Smith or other families who were unable to have children. The pastor said that he wanted to have a kid. They wanted to adopt, and uh, they asked the church to pray that he could, that they, him and his wife could adopt somebody. And because they were trying to go through an adopt, adoption agency. But apparently he had molested his daughter 
And so because of that, he was a registered sex offender and uh, he couldn't adopt. So he said that was before he became a Christian. And after he was a Christian, he you know, stopped doing those things. So I was praying for him that the Lord would, you know, let him be able to adopt some adopt a child and uh and as I was praying that I was thinking, Well, it's in my power that, you know, he could adopt a kid. I could let him adopt one of mine. And that thought had just come through my mind and um, so I ended up talking to Sue about it and I went to the pastor and I said, Hey, if, you know, I was praying, you know, if you'd be able to adopt a child, I said, I talked to Sue, I said, would you like to adopt our next child? And, uh, he agreed. He talked to his wife and he said, yeah, he goes, that'd be great. You know, um, you know, we'll adopt your next kid. Well, Sue ended up having a miscarriage and then I thought, well, what if I, what if I don't have another kid? And that's when, that's when I went to the pastor and I said, you know, you want to adopt Seth. I know that when he came and took my brother Seth, Seth was probably five months old and Tom came in to get Seth. And I remember my mom was pretty hysterical about it. And he took, he took Seth from her and he said, if you can't follow through on your word on the son my wife was promised, you can leave now and your kids will stay here. I kind of felt bad for him, too. I thought I thought he'd have a better life living with the pastor. And because he was screaming when he saw me, because I wasn't there enough to see him. So I think I'm the one that started all that child swapping stuff. That was like the thing to do then. Because Sean did it with the pastor, and then somebody else did it. Um, and then, you know, I guess it was like our turn. But, uh, but yeah, I told your mom, no, you don't have to. You don't have to. Man. And then what happened? At the church. Dad creamed your mom. That's how they got Jennifer. It's almost like he put a guilt trip on her. You know, it was what it was. You know, it's kind of like, reminds me of like Abraham, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. Mm-hmm. You know, are you, are you willing to give up everything for me? And it's almost like that kind of a thing. Are you willing to let us, you know, we just lost our baby. Are you willing to let us have, I don't know. I don't know if you want to ask your mom about it. Cause I don't know if it would probably bring back too many memories, but you know, I, I remember that cause she did. She, then that's when they got Jennifer. So it wasn't something your mom wanted to do. So he would have discussions with soon-to-be parents or parents of children to his liking. And a lot of it was just him using his wife. You know, God, she can't have children, but she's a great mother, and God wants her to be a mother, and you should let him come stay with us for a while. And he would show them his house and all of these luxurious things and all the things I can provide for your children all of the things i can give you in lieu of letting your child live with me they're going to be living with the prophet of god i am your father and a lot of parents did this because they sought that approval they Mm -hmm. wanted that love they wanted that i am a good son i'm doing everything i can this is god's will 
I'm doing the right thing by letting my children go live with him and have a better life and become closer with God. I know in the beginning, everybody's hearts were right in when they did it. Afterwards, it was different, you know what I mean? Because then it went from where it was done out of love to regret. This illegitimate form of adoption got messy too. Like what happens when a member gets kicked out who was given a child, they couldn't legally take the child with them, so that child returned to its biological family. Or if the pastor decided you no longer deserve the child, he could take it away. And if a member left that had given away their child, they could legally take them from the family they gave it to. And all of these scenarios happened. One man gave his child to Smith, only to have Smith turn around and kick him out of the church. Then, Smith divorced the man from his wife and told him he couldn't see his children that were still inside the church, and also planned to keep the man's son he illegally adopted. I hired an attorney to get custody of my kids. I did not say I was going to get Seth, because in my mind, even after that had happened, I like I gave my word. I felt like I gave my word in that I was letting the pastor adopt him. And when we ended up going to court, I had a list of everybody that was going to testify against me. And I told my attorney, I said, ask this person this thing. Ask this person this thing. Ask this person this thing. And they all lied. But the one person that told the truth was... So when we were in court, one of the questions I had the attorney ask, said, uh, when Sean when was in the church, did you ever tell him to shake up his wife? And said, yes. And she goes, and what did you do uh, when he told you that he didn't? And he actually told the truth. He said, said he shook me up. And what happened in the court is when some of the other questions they were asking other people, she asked them, uh, where are you living right now? And they'd say, you know, where they're living. Did you, did you pick out the place you're living or did the church tell you to live there? Or like, uh, you know, where do you get your food at? Or where do you get your clothes? And do you go shopping for your clothes? And, you know, and they're, they're kind of lying you know, because everybody got provided stuff. The mm-hmm. pastor is telling everybody what to do, where to go, what to eat, moving them around. So, you know, and this is why I need to get custody of my kids because Sue is doing whatever he tells her. And I never got to a judgment. I guess it was going so bad for the church at the time that Tom was getting really irate with, with Sue, my wife, mm-hmm. my ex-wife. And she ended up just leaving. And so when she left, she took all the kids with her. We just pulled up to Seth's house and took him. So my grandma came up from Las Vegas. And uh, I remember I didn't know where he lived, but I knew his house. And I knew it was going to the Dallas. And it was a big house on the hill with a rainbow slide. So she found a way to go up there. And we knocked on the door. And Tom's wife opened the door holding Seth. And my, my grandma just, like, snatched him and ran with him to the car. <laughs> and I ran after the car. We got in and we took off. And Tom threatened a bunch of stuff. And my dad said, well, legally, he's my son. It would be kidnapping if you kept him. And that was that. One thing you might have noticed is that Smith hated being told no and hated things he couldn't control. He couldn't make the state give him a child. He couldn't make a judge rule in his favor. 
He couldn't make people who weren't a part of his flock obey him, and it's not really something that gets pointed out in the conversations I had, but he would basically throw a fit whenever things didn't go his way, and then take it out on the only people he could. In this instance, his church was losing a custody battle, so he gets mad at the mother of the children and kicks her out of the church. But things weren't over as far as kids being passed around. After the first child was given to Smith, it became custom for large families to give their subsequent offspring to couples that couldn't have kids. That idea of having all things equal now encompassed one's children too. And, due to the fact that these adoptions weren't legal, when the church ultimately dissolved in 2000, multiple children were uprooted from the parents they were raised by and given back to their biological families. This had lasting psychological effects on the children involved, as well as the surrogate parents. But Smith, who notoriously takes things a step further, did just that for this new custom. When the child he was given was taken back after the core battle, Smith changed the rules of the church's internal adoption custom. It's like he saw how much he could get away with and decided to push things a little further. So instead of waiting for a family to offer him their next child, he could claim a child of their existing family at will. So from the late 80s to 1999, most of the church's boys and girls cycled through Smith's home. I say cycled because Smith rarely kept one of these children for more than a few months. With the exception of a girl and boy, who he and his wife raised for years, the others he sent back home when they quote-unquote misbehaved, usually after a few weeks, claiming they were rotten or full of sin and couldn't remain in his presence. Though the real reason for their disobedience had more to do with what the kids experienced while in his home. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, the adults might be brainwashed, but what's going on with the kids? Didn't they want to leave? Did anyone try to run away? If that was me, I would have run away. And maybe you would have. But to help people who weren't there have some more insight into the mindset of the youth in the church, I want to point a few things out. Earlier, we looked at some reasons why adults remained in the church, and most of those reasons translate to the kids. But there are other factors that are relative only to kids raised in the church. One such aspect was the view the kids held of the outside world. The kids didn't know anything about society except what they were told. They never left the church properties, which were often in remote areas, or spoke with anyone outside of the church. To them, the outside world was worse than the church. It was a dangerous and evil place. They were often told horror stories, like one where a member left the church and was disemboweled by Satanists. They were told about heinous crimes, school shootings, or other events that inspired fear. One I vividly recall was an instance in the 90s where people drilled a hole deep into the earth and dropped a microphone down inside. The sounds they heard coming from the recording sounded like screaming and wailing, which led people to believe that they had drilled a hole to hell. He also claimed to have photos of demons from a cave he explored one day. Side note, I found those pictures during the time I lived with him, and it was just Polaroids of a dark cave, sans the demons. Also, he often talked about Waco, an event Smith called Gentiles Killing God's Prophets, and led us to believe we could be next. He also believed the mass suicide of Jonestown was actually a massacre organized by the government. And I can't help but wonder, if the church was still around today, what would he be saying about the pandemic, and what would we think? Now, if you reinforce those stories with events that most of the children actually witness, such as their homes being shot at, or a family being kidnapped in the middle of the night, you can see how they might buy the narrative that's being sold here and be afraid to leave. But as kids got older and began to think for themselves, they realized maybe things weren't as bad out there as they were led to believe. This concept that we couldn't associate with the world, mm-hmm. and something to this day that still I, I kind of laugh at is... My idea, what I thought the world was, based on the way, you know, the pastor talked about it, and the adults was like, it was this sepia-toned, dystopic-type place, you know, where 
you know, it's always dusk, you know, and, and where we're like Russians or, or the, you know, the enemy is like rolling around in tanks and their skulls on the ground. And, you know, it's just like this desolate wasteland, you know, picture, uh, the book of Eli, right. That's, but in red tones, that's what I pictured the world to be. You know, it's, it's funny because at first, at first I thought it was a cauldron of sin, of darkness, of hell, right? Like they said, uh, I, I thought it was like Mad Max, Fury Road type stuff. Uh, that's what they led me to believe that, that we were in we were in a uh, a mecca of of goodness, a, a Garden of Eden. Because I was so young, I didn't have that many um, experiences of freedom or knowing what the outside world was until I um, left. But even when I left, he told me that um, like they were going to I was going to be hurt or uh, raped and just that these bad things were going to happen to me but I was like in my mind I never responded because I was so despondent and depressed that I um, was like I don't care I'd rather you know die out there trying than stay here Tom was pretty heavy on preaching that anyone outside the church was a whore and a prostitute and worshipped the devil but I didn't think they were Satanists I was intrigued by them because it, it was so different from our own little coven. The girls wore pants. They rode bikes. They, I mean, they wore their hair up. There was women who wore makeup and drove cars. And I couldn't understand why we weren't allowed to. But then I'd ask my mom, and my mom would say, some women like to dress like men and wear pants. Some women can drive cars. But where we live, God doesn't want us to do that, so we don't. And we don't talk about it because then we get in trouble. And that was that. And then as I started talking to people in the world, and you can't see me quoting here, you know, air quotes, I started to realize, well, the world is, is we're in it. We're living it. And it's not this scary, war-torn place. It's they don't want us talking to the world because they don't want us realizing that this is fucking weird. And then as I got older, I started imagining the world. And then I was like, oh, it sounds better than this. So I I would start, you know, uh, uh, imagining going to college, you know, being a schoolgirl, going on a date, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, Secretly in my head, if I mentioned it, I would get my ass beat, obviously. I mentioned it to my mom a couple times. uh, And she was like, no, it's bad. The world is bad. The world is horrible. It's bad. It's going to... uh, 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 consume you of sin, you know, sin and death and darkness. But then as I got older, I started fantasizing a little bit about the world. And it started to look a lot brighter than the hole that I, I was in. But for the majority of kids, especially young ones, that doom and gloom is how they imagine the outside world to be. So you can understand why only a couple of kids ever even attempted to run away in the 20 plus years the church operated. And what happened to one of them reinforced the reasons you were afraid to leave in the first place. To make a long story short, the girl that eloped was picked up, beaten, raped, and left in a parking lot. And when the police found her, they brought her back. Unbeknownst to them, she was only going to face further repercussions for running away. For her, this event was horrible, but for the rest of the kids, it served as a reminder that the outside world was filled with bad people. On top of that, they believed no one would help them. Even the police would just bring them back, so there didn't seem to be any escape. And it didn't look like things were going to get any better, either. If anything, they got worse every day. The other girl I spoke with who ran away said she felt like she had to leave, like she was going to die if she didn't. And while I didn't necessarily feel the same way, 
I remember thinking one day, I don't know how long I could do this. This can't be it. This can't be life. And so I was anxious every morning I got up, feeling like I needed to be somewhere else, anywhere else, but felt like there was nowhere to go. And from there on out, every day was the new worst day of my life. But fortunately for me and everyone else, we wouldn't have to wait much longer for things to come to an end. There's a lot of theories, by the way, between members on why things came to an end. Some people think it was due to tax fraud. Some think it was Smith's declining health. Others think that he just got tired of it all and knew he had enough wealth to take the money and run. But none of those seemed to fit. As far as the taxes, the church accountant informed me. They always paid on time and were never delinquent. His health didn't really start to go downhill until after the church disbanded. And he didn't seem to be getting tired of it, as at the time he purchased an RV and planned to tour the U.S. doing mission trips and recruiting new members. The real reason, I think, is Smith got spooked. But what did a man that believed he was a prophet of God have to fear? How about going back to jail? To understand that, you would have to know what it was like for the kids the pastor took into his home and learn what really happened during their time with him. Everybody. They wanted they wanted everybody's kids. And the kids never wanted to be there. They didn't want to be with them. I was supposed to be mean to them. So when they went home, they would be happier with him. You know, I mean, you want the kids to hate me so they'll love you. And I used to tell them, I mean, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I don't know what else to do. I, I have no choice. I don't know, man. He just never makes sense. The thing, you know, when you're a kid, you try, everything needs to make sense to you. It's got to mm-hmm. fit, even if you don't realize that's what your mind is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And he didn't make sense because you couldn't ever guess what he wanted and what he was going to do next. I was intimidated by Tom. He had a, or grandpa, as we called him. Um, he just, he just had a very like mean, like his face was mean and, and he, and he seemed like, not seemed like, he was just always somebody who would like go off. And Tom came in and started going off and took me into his room and he had this big water bed and TV and he went and he sat in his closet and I asked him, I said, why are you in the closet? He said, because I have to stand in here when I'm bad. I said, what do you mean you didn't do anything wrong? And he said, father's upset. I have to be in the closet. But years later, it was probably 15 or 16 when we talked about it. And he said, he said Tom would come into his room at night. And he would touch him and do stuff. And then he'd wet the bed. And when he wet the bed, Tom would make him take cold showers. And he would belt him. And then he'd lock him in the closet. And he wouldn't be allowed out of the closet until Tom left the house. And his wife would come in and she'd clean everything up. And she'd tell him, you can't wet the bed. When you wet the bed, bad things happen. And he'll keep coming in here. And we talked about it in our early 20s. About some of the really fucked up stuff. And I get it. You know, he stayed with Tom for a while. And didn't even start dating until his mid-20s. It's like, I just... Whenever I touch someone, I see Tom. So I just, I don't. But it, I mean, it took him 24 years to get over what Tom did to him. Do you know why Tom was a registered sex offender? He raped his daughter when she was seven and he went to prison for it. And his wife, thankfully, couldn't have kids. But so many 
well thought out adults in the church were like, let's loan a Mars. We never believed it. So it never really stuck in my head. Like when I'm like, oh, yes, my children are going to go live with you. Oh, <laughs> shouldn't do that. He's a registered sex offender. I would never have let her go live there. Had I thought like, well, God, he's a registered sex offender. Why would you send your child to be there? Why did all of us, all of the kids took their turn through there? You know, why? What stupid idiots we were. I was. If you think about it, how many kids did they have filtered in and out of that house? They had every child under 12 stay with them for a minimum of three weeks. And when those kids rejected Tom, he took it personally. And he took it out on a lot of the parents. Your child is not of God. Your child is not the right one. You know, the Holy Spirit is rejecting him. And that's why they can't live with me. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that was rejecting them. It was them rejecting his dick. When when Jim went to stay with him, they, I don't know what movie they were watching, but said it was a scary movie. And Tom told them to come sit up on his lap. Well, Tom didn't have pants on. Mm. And, you know, he started touching one doing stuff. Well, asked him, he said, what are you doing? We're not supposed to do that. My dad says we're not supposed to do that. And he said, just be quiet and watch the movie. Um... So, as a child, uh, I remember sitting on Tom's lap a lot and kissing Tom a lot because that's what he liked. All I remember is his big, fat, hairy face and his lips on mine. I, I was constantly sitting on his lap and he was constantly touching me and kissing my mouth as a child. I thought that it was really strange. Um, and I thought that he was, there were maybe possibly some boundaries that were being um, overstepped, but my parents seemed to be fine with it. And I, like I said, my, my whole, my whole childhood was uh, uh, an abuse of my body autonomy, like the whole thing, just a violation of everything. Basically, the guy was, I don't know what he was, Zach. I really don't know what he was. He was yeah. very evil. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, he was evil. The incident with Smith and his daughter was something his followers were very aware of, but they bought the narrative that he had changed upon becoming a Christian, and not that this makes a difference, but they believed he had not raped her, that she came to him, and that it only happened once when she was a teenager, and because he was drinking. And it wasn't just his flock he told this version to either. In 1987, when he was interviewed by Front Street Weekly over the Singleton incident, Reporters asked him about his crime, and he said, quote, It wasn't a forced thing. She came to me. She was going to a Lutheran school. She read about Lot and his daughters, and she says, You're lonely, and I'm lonely. And she just fell on my lap. End quote. However, other evidence indicated he had been abusing his daughter since she was a child, and when reporters from the Oregonian newspaper confronted Smith about the accusation that he had been abusing his daughter for years, they said he grew angry and animated and said, quote, I did what I did, and I paid the price for it. I was estranged from my wife at the time, and I couldn't go to a grown woman. I would have felt like less of a man. It just happened. End quote. As far as incidents between Smith and children in the church, let's just suffice to say there were many, and not go into detail. And naturally, none of these instances came to light until years later after the church dissolved. But as far as I know, none of the adult members were aware of it happening at the time. Though if anyone had been paying attention, there were plenty of red flags, the biggest one being two of the children that lived with him needing medical attention for issues often related to sexual abuse. 
When the children were finally taken to the doctor and examined, the results were of course turned over to child services as the doctor suspected physical and sexual abuse. And as soon as Smith heard about the pending investigation, he basically freaked out. The first thing he did was give back the daughter he had been raising for the past four years to her biological family and forbade them from telling the authorities that the child or any others had been living with him. Then he had all physical punishment in the church halt. He specifically said, quote, don't leave any bruises, let them heal up, end quote. And at the same time, any children that looked too skinny were given extra food. I myself had to drink shakes three times a day to put on weight. And he also either directly coached people on what to say when they spoke to child services or had someone else do it. We were told things like, they don't obey God, they obey corrupt laws, they can't understand the things we do, they're of the world, if you tell them about our way of life, they will take you, and if you leave, you'll go to hell. You know, the same old routine. He also had the mother of the children who were being investigated write letters to the hospital and child services, threatening legal action and demanding they change the verbiage in their report, among other things. Now you may be expecting things to end here. You know, the authorities get involved and the jig is up, the bad guy gets taken away in the cop car, but that's not what happened. Yes, child services brought the children in for an examination and interviewed the family, but though they had some concerns, the investigation was eventually found unsubstantiated and the case was closed. But though this wasn't the end you might have hoped for, it was the beginning of the end. Remember I said I think he got spooked? Well, it showed, because his behavior became even more erratic. The punishments happened more frequently, became more aggressive, and more bizarre. And if people didn't leave on their own by then, he started kicking them out left and right. Also, that hiatus from physical punishment for the kids while the investigation was active, that was gone. We also found out there was a list that had been kept of all the things we did wrong during that time, and the score was settled to say the least. In fact, in preparation for this reckoning, some of the men made special paddles out of wood and tire rubber. They even polished the handles and drilled holes in the rubber for, quote, less wind resistance, end quote. But it wasn't just the kids that suffered from Smith's new level of insanity. The adults were affected too. There was more physical and verbal abuse from Smith than ever. He started disciplining the entire congregation during church services, like having everyone come up in front and beat each other, or making everyone shave their heads for things like the hay bale or breaking, or having people do things just to push them past their limits, like having someone cut all the grass in the yard with a pair of scissors, have the entire church bale hay by hand, or make someone move a pile of wood to one area, then move it back, over and over. Things were getting out of control, even by the Bride of Christ standards. Towards the end, you know, towards the mid to late 90s, that's when it started getting bad, really bad. You just, you, you couldn't do anything wrong or even perceived wrong by the pastor. Everything was just, man, just a, a mystery. You couldn't, you couldn't do anything right. Even when you did stuff right, it wasn't right. I mean, you can do something one day and just be totally... I mean, one guy would do it one day and he'd be two steps down from Jesus. <laughs> and then another guy can do the exact same thing and just get reamed. And this is, this is leading right up to before we, were, we, we left. Um, I, I think I had just got back into fellowship. And Tommy did something, screwed up something out at, out at the pastor's house. He had, you know, a little farm there, <clears throat> something with the irrigation and the pastor said, well, can anybody fix this? I said, is there, is there one man in here? And I'm looking around and nobody's saying nothing. Well, I thought, yeah, I can fix it. <laughs> so after church, all the guys went out there. And, you know, I'm supposed to be the man leading everybody to fix this problem. Well, it was just a bunch of irrigation pipe. 
um, underground irrigation pipe. But uh, we were just about done. I mean, it was the last thing to do. The very end of the day, the last thing to do. And I had a pick in my hand. And I'm looking at all the pipes underground. It's all in the dirt. And I'm looking at the direction the pipe goes by all the the stub ups. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, it comes down this way and it goes this way. All right, I got to dig this little part right here. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, yep, there can't be a pipe right here. There just can't be because of how it is. I took one swing. I mean, dead center of the main line of the pipe. <laughs> so, of course, got to go inside and tell the pastor. Went in there, and, man, he just come unglued. I mean, his he was just so mad at me. And he grabbed me, and he threw me down on this couch, and he's just choking the life out of me. I mean, he was just, just everything he had, just trying to kill me. And I think to a point he, he, he liked putting trips on people and hurting them in, in this mind controlling way and making him go, you know, just like what he did. You know, we had to go out and do the hay by hand at night. And just, I think he started to enjoy it more and more. Like the, the baler broke, you know, for baling hay. So Johnny took the, the big wheel and tried welding it back to fix it. Well, it, it, you can't weld that. that. That's not something you can fix with a weld. And it broke again. So because he didn't, he didn't fix it, man, we got, I don't know, what the heck? Everybody got in trouble. And I remember everybody in the church was out at our farm in Benton City mm-hmm. picking up hay one night. Everybody was out in the field picking up by hand. We cut the fields, right? Yeah. The bailer breaks down, and Tom... Calls everybody in the church, and he's talking about the iron horse not working and this and that. Somehow he made it to where the Bible's basically saying we're not going to get another baler and we're not going to fix it. Uh, we got to, like, go out and do it by hand. So we got the whole freaking church out there tying up the loose hay in sheaths like the Old Testament, right? And, the, and we got people driving by just fucking looking at us thinking we're weird as shit and even at the time i realized that people thought we were weird as shit we had to go out there by hand in the middle of the night and everybody in the church came over and it was gonna rain and we had to get the hay in before the rain so everybody in the church went out there with rakes in the middle of the night raking it because the baler didn't work the raker didn't work and then we all went out there we turned on headlights into the field kids everybody we were all out there and he told us uh, he was going to shut it down and kick everybody out because we weren't worth it, worth anything, and we weren't pulling our weight, and that we had better get this done to repent. And if we got it done, he may forgive us and let us stay. So everybody was out there just in tears and praying that you know we wouldn't get kicked out. And I really think he was losing it. I really think he was losing it mentally. I mean, I left the church before he did that spanking stuff in the church. And I'll tell you what happened one Sunday in church, and he was mad about something. He had the men with the other men. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Right, right. Yeah, he had the big men like Bruce and John take a whip and whip the men. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what? The next day he called and he asked, well, why didn't you guys stop me? We couldn't have stopped him from doing that because he probably knocked us down himself. We told him he was wrong, wouldn't he? Now, you know that. Even you, a young person. 
and he is having the adults spank the children, like bring them up and spank them at the pulpit, like beat them, right? And then the very next day, he I don't even remember what the narrative was, but essentially he ends up having the adults spank each other. Right? And I remember thinking, you know, at the time, I'm like, yeah, get some, you little bitches, right? Yeah, how does it feel? And then, no shit, he gets up and tells everybody in church, right? We're in church the, the next time. And he's telling them they're all, like, brainwashed, uh, uh, like, fools. Because if he told them to jump off a cliff, that they jump off a cliff. And I remember thinking, that doesn't even make sense. You just told them to do that. At that point, I think he knew that he had total control. Nobody was going to say anything because they didn't. Why? Why did we do that? I don't know. It almost seems like he wanted everyone to leave, doesn't it? Like if he had been using the method of slowly turning up the temperature over the years to boil his frogs, it was like he suddenly said to hell with it, get out of the pot, and crank the dial up all the way. But if that was his goal, he underestimated the hold he had on his followers, because while some of the members had finally had enough and left the church of their own volition, others weren't deserting as quickly as you might think. In fact, a lot wanted to stay, begged to stay even, regardless of how bad things were getting. So the majority of people who left were forced to leave, and many of them, reflecting years later, stated they were glad the pastor kicked them out, or else they would have never left. But still under his spell or not, the constant barrage from Smith was finally testing the limits of their faith. You know it's like that old torture method, death by a thousand cuts? Well, it seems like they were at 990, because talking to the adults about that time, it's clear to see that they had grown weary more than anything else. They were afraid to leave, but they also knew they couldn't stay. It had been 20 years of physical, mental, and verbal abuse, and constant working, day after day. For many, the only rest they had was sleep, never mind a vacation. And if you remember, they began this working towards the promised utopia. But at this point, I think they had forgotten all about it. They had the money, they had the farms, they had the food. They could be self-sufficient, but there was no goal in mind at the end. They weren't thinking for themselves or towards a future. They were simply putting one foot in front of the other, following whatever command Smith gave and waiting for the rapture that was over a decade late by Smith's prediction. They lived in a constant state of trepidation, waiting for the end of the world. They went without the pleasures of life, had no control over anything. Then add to that all the pain they inflicted and endured, attempting to live the perfect life that the pastor preached and didn't adhere to himself. They were finally giving up. So now when the pastor kicked people out, they never came back. It just got to be unbearable. You couldn't, you you were constantly walking on eggshells and you just didn't know what was going to set them off. So that was life, you know, and you knew that that was going to be in your thinking, okay, my kids are going to grow up here. Is this what they're going to have when they're adults in this church? And, And it just... It was just too much, and one by one, people just start peeling off. They just couldn't do it anymore. I, I just, all I, all I know is it came to a point where I couldn't stand it anymore. I hated, I, I just came to the point where I just couldn't it anymore. It was just, I, I couldn't do that anymore. Like, they kicked Dad out twice. He came back, and then a few years later... They threw him out again when we lived in Benton City. I don't remember for what, for some small infraction. But it was after he broke his back. He got in trouble because he fell and broke his back. And Dad went out and he said, we can do this. He's like, it's not as hard as they make it seem. And uh, 
because he was going to marry me off to somebody else. And then um, he said, we can do this. We can just take the kids and go. And when he came back, it wasn't very, they finally let him back. And it wasn't very long after that. Um, and he said that, you know, we were the next ones to go. And he said, pick anywhere you want to go. You get a bus ticket. And that's what we got. And we got what fit in a backpack for nine kids. They didn't give us any money. They didn't give me diapers for my baby. They didn't give me formula for our baby. We could take two changes of clothing, fit in our backpack, not even a water bottle. Took us to the bus and said, there you go. And that's when we got kicked out. The whole family. I remember him calling me up and I knew he's yelling at me. That I think that was the only time ever that I just didn't care anymore. Leave, get out, leave. I'm like, okay, sure, fine. I was, I was so done. In, I swear, was it West Richland? We had a big shop there, and I remember the guys all still lived in Portland. They had their place in Corbett, and they've got a job close to where we were all at and uh, I think somewhere in West Richland and they got a construction job near there and everybody's going oh great you know the guys are going to be able to come home every night you know they'll get up in the morning meet at the shop go to work and uh, Tom wouldn't let them do it he had them all stay at the shop so they couldn't go home and be with their families and it was just and see that's what I'm telling he liked to cause problems in make it hard on people and put trips on them. I mean, why couldn't they go home and be with their families? Because they'd enjoy it. You know, they'd be a family. And But he didn't want that. He wanted he wanted to keep the pot stirring. All the wives and the kids are just right there, and they're going to the shop to sleep. But see, it's towards the end there. He didn't even try to hide it. He, it was just like, well, no, you're not going to get to see your husbands. You know, it, was, it was that type of thing. He didn't have to make up a story. He just flat out said, no, I'm going to keep him away. That's how, that's how mean he became. The, as years went on, he just it just got harder and harder on the people. That was just, for me, the last straw. I just, at that point, it was like something just opened in my mind. And, and I knew at that point, this kind of behavior was never going to stop. Never. It doesn't matter what anybody does. And I had just had enough. And I and I said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And so we called him and told him that we were leaving. And that's when we left. Like, I would have never left. I got kicked out. You know, and I was going to go back. But then my wife married somebody else. And I knew, at that time then, I knew, well, that can't be right. And, uh, and so that kind of gave me the strength to kind of, stand up against them even though i was scared of them because i was scared you know what because you know they say if you go back to the world you're gonna go to hell and they taught you know hell was a forever torment and you know so we were scared we were scared of leaving i mean we thought we thought we we're gonna go to hell if we did so but i knew what he did was wrong and i a lot of the stuff just really hurt me for some reason, that's why I ended up shaving my head that day I left, because or the night before I left. And it's like, I couldn't do anything right with this guy. And I thought, you know, I told Mark, I said, maybe I should just shave my head. I said, maybe I'm just not humble enough. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. It's like, I'm at wit's ends here. 
I had to do everything for him. I had to be with him and mom all the time. I mean, that's why one of the reasons why I got in trouble a lot because dad and I butted heads. So anyway, it just, for him and I, it snowballed. You know, all these things that I held back, that people held back because they were afraid to say things to him. I mm-hmm. said it that day. You know, I had to let the guy know I was tired of it. I was just tired of it. I was, I was just tired of it. I told him, I said, I don't know what else to do. I said, I was never shorn, so maybe if I shorn myself, I'll get humble, and I can do what he wants me to do. You know, because that's what I'm thinking. It's me. It's got to be me. <laughs> that was wrong. Yeah. So anyways, then I just said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, please. I said, okay, and I walked out the door. You know, I mean, he threatened to have me arrested and everything else. I said, hey, have me arrested. I don't care. If I tell him all the things that I did, they probably will put me in jail. But I didn't say anything to him. I said, but they would have put him in too. Anyway, we had some teachings that we had had from Tom. And one of the ones that he had, he said, my job is to make you obey. And he tried to be a taskmaster that would make us do what God wanted us to do. And see, that was what was wrong. If he would have let us make mistakes and repent and not try to make us be something, it it could have we we would have been so wonderful it was so good in the beginning we loved each other so much all the sisters working together and you know and i don't know if he was jealous because we loved each other so much i don't have any idea what happened except i think because he was a false prophet nothing was going to work what was he thinking that's what i'd ask him what were you thinking you know what, what what exactly were you accomplishing? What were you trying to make us into? I mean, not Jesus, that's for sure. Because we weren't taught to do that. We were taught to walk in the path of Tom. And I don't know if it was because he was sick, because of the strokes he had. I have no idea. All I know is he wasn't the man that I was introduced to in 1981 in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was not that same man when I left the church in Boardman. He was a mean, evil hateful man when I left the church. No, and he wasn't that way when we met. I've often wondered what would happen if the adults could travel back in time and meet themselves as teenagers who just joined the church in 1980. What would these younger versions of themselves think, looking at themselves and seeing what 20 years of following the path they're on looks like? Would that glimpse into the future be enough to make them walk out those doors and never come back? Maybe, maybe not. For those that I've talked to, their feelings vary. Some are remorseful and wish they could take it all back. Others are remorseful but wouldn't change a thing. And some don't believe anything they did was wrong and wish they were still there. One man, who is actually the last remaining member of Smith's flock, posted on social media in 2015, saying, quote, This post is to those past members of the Bride of Christ Church who denied themselves of the world and walked in spirit of truth to follow the living God. Repent of your state of living. Return to Jesus Christ our Lord and Father in heaven. Return to the light, for your testimony exceeds all those out there, you who once had a cross and lived the Acts Church. End quote. And there are others like that too, but no matter who loved it or hated it, in the year 2000, the Bride of Christ Church had finally come to an end. Its members were stepping out of a time capsule they had been in for decades, and the world had changed around them. Money was different since the last time they saw it, everything was different. And they were going to have to reintegrate to a society they once rejected and adapt to the changes. Mind you, this was a world they believed was destined for hell their entire adult lives. They had to shake that mentality, and some of them never really do. 
On top of that, they're faced with reconnecting with family and friends they cut ties with decades ago, if those family and friends are even still alive. And the kids were about to enter a world they had never even been a part of. They were going to have to learn things on the fly, and I mean there's a ton of things they just have no idea about. Intricacies of society most people take for granted that they never learned. You can't even imagine what the first day of public school is like. This was a monumental change, and I'll probably do another episode later about what life was like after the church, but to sum it up, I'll turn to Lord of the Rings. There's a line in the first movie where Sam says, If I take one more step, it'll be the furthest away from home I've ever been. Well, that's what every day and experience was like for months, years even. And as for Smith and his wife, they all but rode off into the sunset after making all the members sign papers, waiving any rights to money and property, before kicking them and their families out empty-handed. Now, if you were expecting a happier ending, I apologize, but unfortunately, this isn't a work of fiction, so I have to tell it the way it was, and that's the way it was. However, Smith didn't live long after his church disbanded. He died in October of 2002 after having multiple strokes. And on his deathbed, he gave the only apology I've ever heard of him giving, if you could call it that. He said to his wife, who later told another member, maybe I was too hard on everyone. His widow Susan is still alive today, remarried, and living out her twilight years off the fortune they made off the work of others. It's certainly not a happy ending, but if you can't take solace in the fact that at least it's over with, I'll let you in on one more thing that used to brighten my day. Not too long after the church ended, Smith called up the ex-members individually. I say Smith, but it was actually his wife who called since multiple strokes left him struggling to speak or stand. He was, however, in the room with her telling her what to say. He said he would forgive everyone if they had learned their lesson and were ready to come back, be a family again. Everyone declined his offer. But what had the biggest impact for me was hearing a slurred voice in the background shouting, I should have been harder on you. You're sinners. You'll be in hell without me and your family will go with you. And my mother, to my surprise, hung up the phone. At that moment, I couldn't believe she actually did it. Briefly, I thought, you're in so much trouble. But then, and perhaps for the first time, I realized he couldn't do anything about it. He had no actual power. Not anymore. In my 11-year-old mind, he went from being this divine figure that controlled our lives and tormented everyone for so long to a bitter, crippled, pathetic old man, one who I imagined battling hatefully from his pulpit to an empty church with crumbling walls, shattered windows, and empty seats filled with dust, as he preached to the ghosts of people that once believed in a false prophet. This whole premise of the Bride of Christ Church, now that I'm adult, it was an all a lie to me. He did things... It was all game. It was all strategic and manipulative. I feared Tom more than I feared God. And that's what was wrong. Because I knew he could take my son away from me. And I knew he could take my husband away from me. And I knew he had the power to do these things. And it took away the fear of God that I should have had over the fear I had of Tom. There's a lot of good stuff that was sprinkled into the church. But a lot of it... A lot of it was just so fucked. And yeah, there were some bad things there. And yeah, there were a lot of things that we shouldn't have done. And there are things we shouldn't have said. There are things that, you know, I mean, there's a lot. But what can you do? You did it. It's done. Every single one that I've run into has really whitewashed it and and acted like, you know, uh, that it was a good place and there was a couple of bad things that happened but it was, you know, it originated out of love and it actually ended with love. Why don't I put your hands on a fucking bench and smash your fingers up with a fucking hammer? Why don't we take your child and, and smash him in the chest? 
like or kick them in the face or wake them up every two hours or starve them or isolate them again you can pretend all you want like you don't remember you fucking remember but this this cult thing it's something you can't shake it, it follows you everywhere um affects our lives you know till we die it was so it was so gradual that had it been the way it was when i first if i would have gone there the first time and it was like that i would jump right out i wouldn't have stayed but when i first went there it was the music it was the hugs it was friendship it was like it was it was a different way that was basically it started off real good in the beginning when I first started going to church because I learned about the Lord and it ended up really bad because man you wound up following a man not even knowing it not even realizing it realizing it